Okay, everybody. Um, this is Training Without Conflict podcast. Uh, I have Joe Rossi with me from Spain. Uh, let's do um, very quickly just a little bit how, how you know what you do. <clears throat> okay, I'll do like a bullet a bullet point list of who I am. So my name is Joe Rossi Huffington, and I'm an animal behaviorist, but I um, I did a degree in human psychology first, and then I did a postgraduate degree in animal behavior after that. Um, and then after that, I started to get really hands-on and changed my opinions about lots of things. And I worked for a large animal rescue uh, for a long time. Uh, and then I worked for a private company where we just worked with dogs that got in trouble with the law and I became an expert witness for the court. Um, <clears throat> And then I started my own company and started taking on staff and just working on kind of private behavior consultations and made a bit of a name for myself working mainly with uh, pit bull terriers um, and a lot of the more human aggressive dogs. So I spent sort of probably 10 years trying really hard to train dogs not to bite people. And then I found myself getting involved in bite sports and spent the next seven years trying really hard to train dogs to bite people. Um, and then also since then, I've been lucky enough to uh, present three primetime TV shows on uh, UK TV, on Channel 4 and ITV, um, and uh, published three books as well as uh, lecture around the world. So I've been across America and um, New Zealand and India and across Europe, uh, mainly lecturing about behaviour problems and behaviour modification. Um, and then in my spare time, I train these guys, Mondiering. If there is spare time, right? Yeah, so, <laughs> that, between feeding my six-year-old as well. So. so one of the reasons we got to talk is because of the the various podcasts and conversation that started recently um, <clears throat> between trainers and, and you are considering yourself, uh, uh, you know, you're more on the force-free side of, of training. Correct. Yeah, I don't use I don't use tools, and I think for me that's really where the line where the line is. So for my training, for the training that I've done my whole career, I've not used I've not used tools. So I've never I'm not like a crossover trainer. So a lot of trainers are have used to use tools and now they don't, and some used to not use tools and now they do. But I've I've just never used tools, and not because I've got some massacre like not because I'm one of those real extremists like death is better than an e-collar but just uh just because I've sat on that side of the fence for the whole time right and right you I get think to it's a certain also point and you've never had to use them you haven't used them and then you go well I don't I don't I don't need them you you accept yeah I mean it's a different different challenges and different puzzles that you need to solve in in a specific way um, yeah. So how do you like like when you we do monitoring? And I mean, I've, I'm sure you're exposed to variety of, of trainers that use aversives as well. You're, it's not like ninety nine percent, ninety nine percent. So yeah. even all of my club, I don't go to a positive club or anything like that. I'm the only trainer that doesn't use them at my club. Um, I train at three other clubs sporadically. And all of them use tools as well. I'm the only one in those clubs that don't use them. So we are we're a rare breed, especially in southern Spain. That's very cool. And how how did they how do the the, the other trainers go go along? I'm I'm assuming that you have to give them some directions because probably their way of thought it's oh let's do this and, and you have to kind of present a different 
uh, uh, idea, right? So it's very difficult at the beginning. When I first moved over here with my older dog, Blake, who's there, mm-hmm. um, when I first moved over there with him, when, when I first moved over here with him, it was really difficult because they didn't know me and they hadn't seen his training at all. And so there wasn't any, tr- I hadn't built any trust with the clubs and with the decoys um, that I could even do it. So they were kind of like, there's this little girl who's come here with a big Mally. Like, what? what, what is this? Over time basically merely by continuing to turn up despite their attitude every week week in without twice a week putting the working showing that I could train the dog um I think I, I gained a lot more respect at those clubs um to the point where they were much more open to listening to my ideas so when I first started it was a lot more about me saying I don't want you to do this mm-hmm. and so it was a lot more about just saying to the like for the for example for the decoys um if they had the dog on the bite and he had a lead on i didn't want them to correct him on the on the lead so i'd have to just say to them i don't want you to do i just don't want you to do that and we it wasn't really a dialogue at that point because they didn't really trust me that i could i could out my dog or that i could recall my dog in those situations um but then over the weeks i think we got to a point where we like now we've we've got a, a massive respect me and my coach for each other and um and the trainers that I train with, it, it's like, it doesn't really matter. They know that if there's a problem, they'll say to me, <clears throat> for example, my dog was barking in the defense. Um, and they will say to me, this is how we would fix this. We can fix this like now in this one session, like pass me a prong uh, and we can do it. It's done. But I know you don't want to do that. So do you, so a lot of the time I will then say, okay, I need, I want to, let's just stop the session. I'm going to go away and I'm going to think about it and I'm going to come up with a solution. And then I'll go home and I'll think, hmm, how, like, how am I going to do this? Like a little game of chess. Um, and then sometimes I'll have a solution in my head straight away and be like, I've thought about what was going to happen if this happened. Um, so can we try this route instead? And it's it's been super, super eye-opening in so many ways, like super eye-opening. I've learned an absolute shit ton i don't know if i'm allowed to swear on this podcast but no. an absolute is that right an absolute shit ton uh in terms of methodology handling techniques mechanics um even just the way they've done something when i've gone i wonder if i can do it exactly the same just without that and like like um, amazing stuff um and it's also it's also given me so many so many moments where there's a real ethical dilemma where mm-hmm. I have to, like barking in the defence was a really good example. So defence against the handler, my dog has to stay in contact with me <clears throat> and move around me, keeping vigilant with two decoys. And then when they come over um, and make contact with me, he bites them. And he had a problem that uh, he he'd, he takes he takes that particular exercise quite seriously. Um, and just to, just that. to interrupt for the people that may not be quite familiar with ring sports, the the barking per se, it's not by any means any penalty, but it leads to problems. It kind of opens the dog to to become more pushy and then not focus and then take initiative when it's not supposed to. So just just so yeah. everybody kind of understands why we. It was almost the opposite problem with Blake. So mm. he he wouldn't bite because he, he's he's a bit busy he's quite a with the barking. He's quite a scrambled dog anyway. He's um, 
I like to blame it. He's got poly A22, so I, I kind of like to blame it on that a bit, but it's, it's nothing to do with that. He's just one of those dogs that when he gets into barking, he gets in a bit of a loop and he can't remember really what he's doing. Yes. And he's like, so I didn't want him to bark for that. He doesn't lose any points. When he first started doing it, he was very able to do the exercise. I made the error of allowing him to do it a couple of times, thinking, mm, he seems okay when he's barking. He, he doesn't seem to lose his head too much. And then by like the third or fourth time, it, I think it becomes so rewarding for them as well mm-hmm. he just loses head so i then had to think outside the box because my my trainer was like we'll just put a prong collar on him and, and in one session i can fix this i can make this super clear for him and he's you know he's beautifully sensitive anyway we don't we don't have to do this um and i said no i want to think outside the box and to start with I wanted to use kind of the strategy of if I can manipulate his access to the decoy, then I should be able to to prevent him from barking. So all the time you're not barking, the decoy is going to move around you, the exercise continues. And the minute you start barking, the decoy goes stationary, completely yeah. still. And we wait, I'll tell you to quiet. If you quiet, the decoy continues to move. If you carry on barking, we'll wait a little bit, I'll ask you again. Um, but what I found was that after like maybe three sessions of this, I could see that it wasn't clear for my dog. And it put me in this horrible like ethical dilemma where I was like, this isn't that this isn't providing him with clarity. And it wasn't that the decoys weren't doing what I asked because they did. It's just for whatever reason, for him, that lesson, that picture wasn't clear to him. And just I could seeing see him the getting... barking in a very different level for him, like the, the meaning of barking and engaging mm-hmm. in the barking, right? Mm-hmm. And... And obviously he does bark and hold and it just like for him, it just didn't, it didn't work. Like I could see it. I was thinking if I carried on doing this, maybe for three or four months, then I'm going to get to where I want to go. But ethically, like if we're going to, if we're going to forget about what tool is, is most and least painful or aversive or startles the dog most and instead really concentrate on kind of the ethics of what is good training and what's going to be quick and smart and improve clarity and teach the dog the lesson in a way that's going to be quick for them to get clear and open the window fastest for reinforcement i could see frustratingly that the prong collar was in that way much more ethical than the sort of program that i designed um, and in the end, I found a I found a little sidestep round it, um, which is that for my dogs, I would say that m- my style of training is very, very, very verbal, um, and so I I give them a lot of uh, I give them a, a real indication as to when they're going well and when they're Feedback not going well. Feedback on both sides, right? For sure. For sure. So, so for me, what all I did really in that situation, what I, I suddenly had a brainwave and thought, why aren't I talking to him? Like, because I can't talk to the decoys, I'm not talking to him. And I thought, what am I doing? Like, why don't I just talk to him? So I started going, good boy, and stroking him, good lad, good lad. And then as soon as he barked, I'd give him a mistake marker and say, ah, ah and yeah. remove my body language. Like, I'd emotionally change, and he'd go, oh shit. And actually, that was really, really quick. And so that's we can we can debate all day long as to whether or not in fact that was probably more aversive than if i had used the prong but mm. either way that was my kind of like that was my sidestep round but it definitely got me to debating in my head like 
even when I when I saw a route that was more ethical for my dog, I chose not to do it. Why did I choose not to do that? Because is that just my that's my own ego, really? Right, right. Yeah. So that's definitely that's definitely training with those guys so regularly has given me so much food for thought like that. And training ring sports full stop has given me so much food for thought like that because we're training dogs that are very high drive and that have that, that love being out on the field. Which is one of the one of the the books that you did that you write about the uh, uh, making sure the dog has an outlet and a purpose in life, which we talk a lot about. Uh, um, but it's a tough road. I I can only imagine your first sessions, knowing me being a decoy myself for so many years, knowing how somebody would come and. And most of the time as a decoy, you know that that person has opinions and ideas, but from my past experience, you really also know that they are not coming up with some ideas that make sense. And, and, uh, you know, the decoy ego always gets hurt. And, and now, and, and I guess the, the reason it worked for you is you stuck with it. Mm-hmm. And they started probably seeing that that there is some logic behind it, and and probably even get interested. So, well, let's see what just gonna do, just out of pure yeah. dog training curiosity, right? In some ways, I actually think that because here it's so it's such a masculine sport. All the ring sports are such masculine sports here, like ninety percent men. And I actually think that my gender had um, was to my benefit in that situation because I think they kind of allowed it a little bit more than they would have done if it was a bloke. Because I think they were a little bit mm-hmm. like, "I'll let that little girl do her silly things." Because actually, sometimes it works out for her. Um, and then they started to ask me questions. I remember one of the one of the funniest times where it did work out for me, where they were interested, was. When um, when I first, like all dogs go through it, don't they? When I first had that problem where Blake didn't out, where he first went through that little step where he says, nah, nah I think I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay here with this guy because he's much better than you. Um, and I remember uh, I did a second whistle and my coach said, no, put the reward away. Put, put, your, put your ball away. You don't, don't give him the reward. And I was like, no, no, I need to give him a party. I want to give him a party more. And we had this like this moment where he looked at me like, you're mad. You're mad. <laughs> because in my mind, the dog hasn't outed properly. And so you should be giving him less or no reward. But in my mind, the dog hadn't outed immediately. So I needed to massively increase the motivation yes. for him to out next time. So I'm giving him a party. And everyone in the field is looking at me like I'm totally, like I've lost the plot. Like she's giving she's giving this dog more of a party. Right. But indeed, the next time I outed him, boom, he's off straight back to me. Yeah, so, like, this is a it's a classic one. And I guess sometimes sometimes I mean it could go both ways. Like I, I just as you were saying it, I picture also uh, a dog that does anything halfway mediocre and the dog trainer would be well let's let's reward the the good one and we ignore or or we stimulate the not so good ones but exactly right like if I, if you if i call a dog and they're casually coming and trotting but then they get a big reason why they need to come mm-hmm. then you you're increasing their motivation to come the next time you're not necessarily rewarding that one you're yeah. building you know the the present 
is used in the future and and it's uh it's that's like kind of where the we money, are. isn't it show right. me the money right and then and i think that is the only so i have a real problem with the quadrant being used all the time in because I, it's such an outdated model it's so reductionless we overuse it we try to use it to explain things that don't fit into those boxes but i, I have a massive problem with the quadrant which i'm sure we'll come on to at some point but um it's one of the it's one of the reasons that that it is useful is literally for that because because if you're if you're gonna throw a party for the dog when they haven't outed the first time when they've come back to you or when they're recalling and they're recalling slowly and you throw a party for them, the only real logical way to deal with that is to go, what's my criteria? What's the consequence? And now is the behavior increasing or is it decreasing? And to measure it. That's the only way, is it? Right. But essentially if the dog's gonna come off the next time and the next time better and better. Or they're going to go, oh, when I come back slowly, I still get a massive reward. So I might as well come back slowly. So you can only you can only really deal with that by doing ultimately doing more and more reps and just measuring and seeing whether or not that consequence is like whether or not it's reinforced that slow behavior or whether or not it's reinforced the initial behavior of coming back. So when you when you um, when you see trainers that use aversives and they like like how how much input you're willing to give i'm like my guess is that because you're on that other side of looking at different ways you probably see the problem like you you can bring something beneficial to the resolution but i guess how stuck are the trainers are they adopting any ideas of what you're doing or or is it like how does that work i would say in the obedience yes so i think in the obedience a lot of the methods that i've seen have changed um ultimately from from when i first started i saw a lot of like just modeling the dog into position um and like marking when they get it wrong and a lot of setting the dog up to fail with things like food refusal and marking the dog when they get it wrong and and a lot more sort of compulsion side where you're setting the dog to get it wrong and punishing it because it's it was that their skill set lay in punishing the dog a lot more um i have seen some really elegant use of those tools where they're kind of like using them more to motivate the dog and to activate the dog or to um or to use kind of negative reinforcement in things like heel work where they're really that where those tools in those situations the way they're being used by those trainers really is adding clarity um specifically if they're used at the very end to kind of polish the behavior or to layer on top to kind of add more nuanced clarity to specific parts of the behavior and the behavior was built with motivation um but but I think the, the the people that I've worked with generally have where they've taken most notice is using that kind of that sort of different, more, I'd say, modern positive tr- style of training mm-hmm. in the obedience stuff. So in positions, so like using really high arousal luring with a toy for positions and things like that, where in their heads, Positive trainers, when they're teaching positions, are basically using spatial pressure and luring to get the dog into position and it's slow and it's ugly and it doesn't look great. And it's, you know, when actually we've moved on a lot and now, you know, using those sorts of much more high arousal luring techniques, we're getting really flashy, fast, like polished um, and very, very quick off the cue type um, type 
behaviors when it comes to things like heel work and like jumps when you're jumping place to place and food refusal when you're teaching kind of like eye contact or look towards the owner instead and and things like that so I think that they've they've picked up a lot on that I think they've learned a fair amount about um about reward placement that they weren't thinking about before and about how we, how we can use the placement of the reward and I like to think I think some of them, not all of them, but certainly some of the trainers that I work with now also consider punishment placement, which is something that I see a lot of trainers really mess up um, when they're... What do you mean by punishment placement? I mean, like the the place, the direction... Oh, the time the when... Where the pressure comes on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. A lot of people, you know, I've seen people use it in a way where you think it's coming from emotional kind of mind like, yeah or it's coming from the right when you want the dog to come in to heal like if you're using a prong collar um in that in in that oh, way I see what you mean yeah 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 things like that and and I think I I think but now like we talk so often not about guiding the dog to to easily find the 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 solution right yes yes exactly and I think that there's I think that they've start I think that a lot of the trainers that I work with now are starting to think a lot more of of using pressure to guide the dog rather than using it just to correct the dog and when they're using it to guide the dog and they're using it into more of a communication system i think they're much more um their brain has become a lot more articulate at working out if it happens then and it happens there that's going to be better than if it happens then and if it happens there because it's going to make a clearer picture for the dog um and i think that seeing a lot of reward-based training has helped them kind of maybe articulate that more that would be the dream at least for me, I'm sure for you to, to be able to like in so many different sports and areas of dog training to have this, to come together and train together and understand each mm -hmm. other and see the, uh, you know, where are the limitations in which place, what are the benefits and, and really, you know, I know in a, in a one of the, well, we, we've talked so much now that, but you know, one of the things that we, we talked that was very interesting and, and uh, I ended up, you know, mentioning this quite a few times after we've been talking uh, with the Lima, um, you know, the less intrusive minimally aversive approach and, and how, um, you know, we have to, we cannot underestimate the importance of clarity, timing mm -hmm. and and... And, and efficacy, having a goal that gets met. Right, right. Yeah, efficacy is probably like the, the first thing, but I guess that comes with clarity, right? And um, I, had a, I had an opportunity to talk with Steve Lindsay and um, very much in the same, the same, obviously he somehow, I don't know what brain he has and like how he writes these books, but after talking to him f for a while, uh, I realized that this, if anybody can write three, 400 pages books, it's he's one of those people that can do that. You know, it's just like mind blowing. But the, the, the Lima situation with, you know, like where the, the force free or positive only, or I don't, I don't know, like they, I don't, why, why do you think, before I even go there, why, why do you think the, those labels continue to 
change to something else every single time. The moment I start to get used to how to address them, and it's a, no, we, we are now a different, we have a, we call, you know? I think it's because none, I think, I think primarily a lot of the labels initially were built off the, uh, off the quadrant. And I think that never works. It doesn't work because the quadrant shouldn't be used the way it is in dog training. And so there were too many times when, when people called this section of, let's call it this section, this section of dog trainers, when they called them like positive reinforcement trainers, it became frustrating to, to everybody because it was so factually incorrect. Like, cause it implies like you don't use negative reinforcement or positive punishment or negative punishment. And ultimately a you don't know what you've used when it comes to the quadrant until after you've used it because you have to have been able to measure it so it has to be in retrospect and b depends on what criteria you're depends on what criteria you're measuring before you can before you can allocate what box it goes into so most situations in real life can be are, are punishment and reinforcement depending on what you decide to measure so it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to classify a dog trainer based on on the quadrant it's it's like it's ludicrous actually when you think about it yeah especially that we disregard like if we, if we if we get completely stuck in that dry pure version of okay reinforcement mm-hmm. and punishment we we ignore we don't talk about emotions we don't talk about genetics we don't talk about a bunch of things that are really dramatically affecting the outcome. I've got a beautiful example of this actually, based on, so I listened to a podcast and she was like, oh, there's the perfect example of negative reinforcement. She talked about a dog lying by a fire and getting too hot and leaving. And I that blew my mind a little bit because I went, what? Like that isn't the perfect example of that. Like, like because to start with, so what measure, What what if we measure the behavior of the dog lying by the fire then the heat positively reinforces the dog for lying by the fire but if the criteria of the behavior is lying by the fire then lying by the fire reduces when the heat is removed and therefore leaving it is is negative punishment if we're going to measure moving away from the fire then moving to the fire is reducing when the dog moves, uh, mo- moving away from the fire is reducing when the dog moves to the fire and with the increase of heat. And therefore that's positive punishment. Lying by the fire is positive punishment. And then if we're going to look at moving away, then it is negative reinforcement. But the key factor in that situation is the temperature of the dog. Like w- if the dog is temperature X, he wants to lie by the fire. And <laughs> if he yes. is temperature Y, he wants to move away from the fire. So the quadrant is completely irrelevant because it's so reductionist that it hasn't taken into consideration the most important key variable in that in that picture. Yeah. So it's um, it, it, it's it's almost silly to think about, like to, to suggest like, oh, well, this is, you know, this is a great example of, of, of negative reinforcement because you're like, well, only if you're measuring the dog moving away from the fire, in which case moving to the fire was positive punishment in the first place. And it's which doesn't make any real sense because the only the thing that's there's there's a huge variable that's changed, which is the temperature of the dog. Yeah. Like and it's, and it's kind of depending which glasses you put on, how you want to, mm-hmm. which part of that whole thing you want to look at 
which is also, you know, that's kind of where, what was his name, Michael, something in the 70s when he came with that idea that negative positive reinforcement should there should not be even a distinction because to have one, the other was existent prior to. Hmm. But it just made me laugh because I was like, the funny thing is, is that if you were going to, if you forget the quadrant, right, if we get the quadrant, we rip it up and we throw it away and you look at that situation, the one variable that you'd want to mess about with in order to create the behavior would be the temperature of the dog. And it's the only variable that doesn't fit in the quadrant anyway. Right. Like, yeah. so it's just, I thought it was a beautiful example, actually, of how irrelevant the quadrant can be when we actually look at a full, a full picture. Um, because it's... Uh, and 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 I, I think it's it's quite a nice example of the fact that anything at low enough level can be uh, could be counter conditioned to feel good, and anything at high enough level could be conditioned or will become aversive. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 a it's a shit example of negative reinforcement. Yeah, we um, we get stuck in giving sometimes. I dog trainers are really like we're preoccupied with coming up with analogies for some reason, yeah. right? It's like, yeah. a, oh, I have a good one. And, and it's like, um, but sometimes they backfire and they don't make sense. And, and you talk to some client and you, you give some analogy and they're like, that's just not <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, and we can, I think people say get so preoccupied with the quadrant as well that they forget about dog training. And you just, you kind of want to shake them and go, it doesn't matter. Like don't, you don't need to describe it as negative reinforcement and justify why you're describing it as negative. Like it, that doesn't. That's not a part of this picture that matters. And in every other, like in nearly every other paradigm, like child psychology and most marine psychology, like in in most other forms of education, when we're educating other beings, this is so outdated. Like it, it, like it's it's the sixties. We we it's so reductionist. We don't think about that. When I'm like, if you look through child psychology, you, you don't. We, we don't think about that it's maybe it's like one lecture or one module like it's not important but for some reason dog trainers have become fixated that this is the the primary and most important thing in dog training is being able to classify something in a retrospective metric system yeah which is that, just crazy yeah that that's um, um it's so true and it makes it it kind of if you if you can talk that specific talk you believe that you're validated you're, you're like yeah. oh i i'm i am a really good dog trainer because i understand the quadrants and i can apply them correctly and and i i cannot agree more with you that it's like a it, it's very restricted way of thinking and and there is do i i mean i'm sure we don't disregard them there is a, a no. crazy value in understanding uh you know random Reinforcement, continuous reinforcement, time schedules. I mean, schedules, like, you know, 100%. of course, we, you know, and forward, backwards conditioning. I mean, there's, there is things that they're fundamental, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not the whole picture as a dog trainer. There is, and, and on top of that, besides as what we're saying, genetics and, and emotional state and and uh, age and maturity and like just, just so much. Um, the endocrinology of the dog, like the hormones, where it is in its cycle, where it is in its like breeding life. 
like whether or not it's old and it's kind of finished that or whether or not it's young and it's just starting to qualify as a competitive animal within its social dynamic and like these things make way more impact than people give them credit for and then there is a whole part of of truly being there is some art form in training dogs like like without a doubt there is there is something you know there's like this thing that i found a way for you and i to to do something that doesn't necessarily match as any any of the structure that we know Mm -hmm. like i've talked to quite a few very uh, influential scientists and and almost everybody somewhere in the conversation is like you you cannot forget that what you guys are doing there is an art to that it's not you know and then i think this is the the interesting part for the training dogs more interesting than than staying focused on the quadrants right way more interesting and i think it's the part that's getting lost in the education system it's the part that i find really frustrating because coming from an academic background i get a lot of students who come from an academic background who have done a degree in animal behavior and so on and so forth and you come out having read the books and having having understood the studies and having having read it and think that you understand it and understanding it on that level is is nothing like doing it is nothing like doing it and you can't teach doing it without doing it and it's i think i i worry especially in england i don't really know what it's like in america but especially in england that the universities seem to be churning out academics that are well read and have very strong opinions particularly on on methodology with with literally no mechanical skills yeah with nothing like like nothing like i'll ask them to walk into a kennel and they they can't you know like there's a, there's a there's an art to walk into a kennel isn't there like and and you'll think you're going to let that dog out like h- how have you not learned how have you done 3 years in university learning about animal behavior and you haven't learned to walk into a kennel it's um or or i think it's this is this is around the world uh, um where we are today for sure i don't think this is england specific well, and um, it seems to have gone full cycle doesn't it because to start with like a long time ago the most famous the most famous trainers and the trainers that were kind of most respected were those that were either head of military head of army or teaching the disney dogs on films yeah. or you know these guys were the guys writing the books these guys were the gods of dog training and then somewhere down the line it switched and instead of going oh it's actually really useful when you understand a little bit about the science and you can do it somewhere down the line it went no it, the, the science is the is the most important holy grail and it really it really isn't it really isn't at all and and uh, like i was i don't know was it yesterday i mean a couple of days ago i don't know i was just talking with michael ellis on the phone like every once in a while we would have this super long conversation either one of us calls just just with ideas you know and and yeah. we we kind of go way back in training to where we witness the whole uh, um evolution of of okay there is a whole other way that we can do things and and it's not it doesn't always need to be forced that there is definitely a very interesting ways and for some reason what we were talking really about was that how dog trainers or or just humans in society we just 
seem to always bounce from the one thing and kind of get to where we should be, but then we keep pushing it further to where it goes so far on the other end that it becomes not just impractical, but we're kind of getting lost at this point uh, of of what 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 are we really doing? Are we trying to to train dogs or not train dogs? And um, just as I said, train dogs right now, from what I gather from from just how the the you know force free community or at least part of them, uh, there, there is a, a, an idea that we don't even talk about training dogs anymore. It's, oh, uh, it drives me mad. I hate yes. it. I hate it. it doesn't respect the animal's genetics. It doesn't respect why they are dogs, how they are here, and why they aren't the wolves. That and are out and there. the reason we are together, you know, I mean, they, it's the, in, this is like the, the most beautiful interaction because it has challenges. We grow together, we find ways, which I, mean, mm-hmm. I don't see, like I truly don't see what can be better of a, of a way interaction between dog and a person than, mm, than accomplishing these things that we call training, whatever mm-hmm. whatever the, it is, right? Um, but yeah, there is there is something about this. I think I think so. What I what I think happened. I've got a bit of a a bit of a theory, which is that I think what happened is there was a bit of an industry boom in terms of dog training, and then as a result of that, there was suddenly more accessible animal behaviour academia. So I think suddenly, because a result of the industry boom, they said right, there's a need, there's a need for this. And at the same time, they said, well, if there's a need for this, let's educate them through education where they can pay us loads of money. <laughs> and um, and I think that coincided with a bit of a change, which which isn't the change that people like to think it was. But from from my from my understanding was simply a change where they said, hmm, hold on, we don't need to alpha roll dogs and we don't need to force dogs down or hold their mouths clamped. There are other ways of doing this that don't always set the dog up to fail and then punish it. And and I think actually when the when the if you, if we're going to call it positive, when the positive movement started, it included the whole of the balance movement. It pretty much was the balance movement because it included things like you know, if the dog jumped on the counter, you'd still tell the dog off and you know and and make sure that there was a consequence there. So the dog didn't know, knew not to jump on the counter again or if the dog raided the bin. But then on the other hand, if you then you went on and started food prepping and the dog didn't, you might give the dog something on the floor. It was it was balanced, as in it was both. And right. it wasn't, I don't think at that point, there was um, this great big desire to completely remove any level of aversive communication or any level of mistake marking or telling the dog they'd got it wrong or, or anything like that. Not at that point when it first started moving over. And I think that 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 whole movement coincided with the increase of academia. And so the two things have somehow become linked so that the academics are only teaching that method because that was the most modern method. But there's been some confusion where that method has been pushed so far this side that now that method is is force free or whatever. And requires this idea that you're not allowed to say no to your dog. You shouldn't give it any consequence that feels aversive. You shouldn't communicate with your dog that you're disappointed in them you should which is 
just so far removed from our our natural communication skills as humans and their natural communication skills as dogs but it's like it's like saying uh, you've got to speak english but you're not allowed to talk any vowels you know yes very true um, yeah uh, but i think as a result of that a lot of the academics that don't have the that real art of training yet come out with this real notion and 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 they come out as you know, when we talk about all the different things that affects behaviour, obviously it affects humans as well. And they come out at the right age, the right point in their breeding cycle as human beings, etc., to be very, um, to, to desire risk and really come out and be real loud and proud. And they're at that point in the Dunning-Kruger where they feel like they know everything. And so they're the loudest part of the community shouting with probably quite a low skill set when it comes to actually training dogs, quite a low experience level when it comes yes, to actually training totally, dogs. totally like totally true but somehow they 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 really have become the authority i mean at least by by some accepted as the ultimate authority but is that not because of social media and because of the media because again they're young so they're the sexy ones normally they're the ones who are gorgeous and going out there looking gorgeous speaking and being loud and proud which is exactly what the media requires because it's exactly what as yeah. other humans we desire seeing and they're the ones shouting shouting about it like you know when me as an old woman talking sense doesn't isn't nearly as attractive as the 21 year old down the road who's real gung-ho and enthusiastic and passionate and saying you know what i can change the world with this method and i can give me any dog right yeah true so i think it's it's an amalgamation of all those things that have kind of got us to where we are now in this incredibly frustrating situation <laughs> whereby it feels like there's camp a and camp b when in fact there are no camps. We're all just dog trainers. Some of the dog trainers are really crap and they're not very good at what they do. Some of them are amazing and they're brilliant at what they do. Some of them are developing. And, and they're de- really like- good ones that care about <laughs> the, the interaction and the, the welfare and everything about the dog. They, the, regardless of what side of the sand line, the, intentional, mm-hmm. the intentions are exactly identical like we we you know we want the best and the 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 the, you know now when we take that best to to go off rail and and start to change like we don't talk about we we disapprove of training even as a term dog training is a bad idea um it, it starts to really like what what are we doing and and why are we yeah. why are we listening to what, what what is your take why why do for example the veterinary animal behavior specialists across the world are becoming the authority of how dogs should be trained yeah when they like like they like when i read all the mission statements I I don't understand how you can have graduated and you can say things that like you have to know that this is incorrect statements that you're making, but you're saying them because you're going to be approved and liked by many uh, on one side. And that makes the divide somehow. I think it's a blind faith in science. 
I think like we used to have religion and everybody believed just blind faith, like, yeah, God, God made it. It's no drama. God made it. But we mm. used to have that. And I think now we've become a bit like that about science, as if science is a finite thing and not a method. People say, what did the science say? People say, you know, people often say to me, yeah, but the 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 science proves that. And I'm like, I don't think we're talking about the same science because science doesn't prove something. There are very few, very, very few laws in this world, apart from death and taxes, really. And like the the science is just a method. It's a journey. And usually it's a loop actually whereby everything ends up being a continuum because that is that's the way that life works you know there isn't there isn't a black and white there's always this scale in the middle and and that's really and 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 science will eventually show that and then it will be debunked and then it will show something else and then it will show something else and you can use science to say whatever you want but i think that people have got and i think i think people have got so het up on what the science says is proof and is correct as if science can be correct and incorrect and it can't it's just data science is data but i think people are so obsessed with it that now the the reason that everybody is so like black and white these you know using using tools is um unethical as if unethical is black and white which it really isn't or is aversive as if aversive is black and white which it really isn't um and you know, and using positive reinforcement, you can train anything with positive reinforcement because science says so when it did a test of 16 dogs jumping through a hoop, yeah. you know, but, but I think people are so obsessed with what the science says now that they, that they heed little in the experience of the people who are actually out there in the trenches training the dogs. And at the same time, if you're graduating and you want to put some paper out, you're mm -hmm. pretty much guaranteed that if the paper follows that narrative, mm -hmm. it will get thumbs up by the, mm -hmm. the, the scientific community and your peers. And, and, and it's almost a, it's a two way street where at this point that those people that are making the studies, they know that they can, I mean, look at the, what was the one, um, Daddy Mills, Mills in China. Yeah, Mills in China. I mean, she, she, all she did was just, just talk about the, the thing that was happened seven years ago, and and everybody's like, wow, great. As if it's a new bit of information. It, that that study was one of the one of the examples of the the poorest piece of science I've seen. Like it's terrible. It's terrible on so many levels. Like because it it ignores so many of the really important variables like movement. Um, and, and how movement affects cortisol levels and uh, temperature and you know yeah. the fact that some dogs are uh, being trained out in the snow and some are being trained in, like it's it's ludicrous not to mention the fact that back in the day the technology that they're talking about when they're talking about e-collar training is chalk and cheese to what we're talking about now yeah. as well as the methodologies which have developed and and i would say the same about the the positive training if you like when I look at that positive training, what they're doing there is they're conditioning a whistle with food and then walking backwards and all this stuff. You know, we wouldn't do any of that if we were training recall of sheep now. You'd, you know, you'd use toys, you'd use flirt poles, you'd think about reward placement, you'd think about all these other different things that we think about now. So I think I think there should be like a, a sign, like a, 
like a data graveyard where when data reaches a certain age it has to be killed you're not allowed to use it anymore mm -hmm. just because the the picture of a of an industry changes so much right. and that really should have been put in the graveyard a long 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 time ago maybe a year after it had been made and that's if we forget all the clearly methodological and bias within the study itself yeah i yeah so so i i that's so true same goes with mm with how when we talk about um uh what was the word of the um, crossover trainers one way or the other and it's like yeah i'm crossover trainer 30 years ago 30 years ago is a extremely long time of what <laughs> we are doing regardless if it was all positive or balanced or all aversive 30 years ago what, whatever you were crossed over you should revisit it even even if you don't want to do it you should just revisit it of pure interest in dog training and to see where it has gone today it's a different game i do feel i feel sorry for balanced trainers in many ways because they are made out to be a, like some kind of a villain and the tools and the you know i think i think one of the problems of this is that is the the lack of definitions that the, the or the inability for some reason in our industry to to understand that that definitions aren't always black and white, because I do think that a lot of trainers think aversive or stress, and these words have got such emotional connotations. And when we think of aversives, we think of torture, and we think of pain, and we think of which you know, is an option, of course. Yeah, for sure. Um, but. Aversive is just the opposite of appetitive. Like either the animal naturally moves away from it, or they move towards it. And if they move to move away from it, then it's then it's aversive. And you know, like a tap on the shoulder can be aversive. Like me staring at a certain way can be aversive. Like it's not all aversives are not made equal by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. Not just as acts themselves, but for dogs themselves. And like for example, I've seen. Like, for example, the Deaf Dog Network would always recommend um, an e-collar over or, or generally will recommend an e-collar over a vibration collar. Because for most dogs, and I would say for, mm, I've got five dogs, deaf, for that bulldog there, the white little bulldog, if I put a I vibration didn't even see her, him there. <laughs> <laughs> if I put a vibration collar on her, she would lose her shit. She would hate it because she's incredibly, like, like a lot of the bulldogs are, she's tactile. She's incredibly sensitive. Like, I can put my hand on her and feel her fizzing like a can of Coke. She's she's just that sort of dog. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. hates that kind of thing. But I think, I, I honestly think, and I never have, but I honestly think that if I put an e-collar on her, I think she'd go, meh. Like, I just I don't think it'd be a big deal to her because in the same breath, when I play fight with her and stuff, she's strong and robust and she's 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 quite hard. Like if she does something that is naughty because she's she's properly naughty in there uh, when she does something that is naughty. And, and I say, oh, don't do that. Where the other dogs will listen to me and go, shit, she's that typical bullish. Ah, Sodja, I'm not interested. I'll do it anyway. Yeah. Type type dog. And so that the very same thing, you know, so so for a lot of the deaf dogs, when, when it comes to aversives, the vibration collar is considered significantly more aversive than the e-collar. And, you know, the haughty and the prongs, another one that people absolutely hate talking about. I should really say slipply just to keep yeah. the audience. Clear. But you see these mastiffs and they're, they're being walked by an 80 year old woman who won't rehome the mastiff. Fine. I understand 
that if the dog's reactive, that without a doubt, there is a danger there. That 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 even if you train the best loose lead walking in the world, an eight-year-old woman walking a ten-stone dog, there's there's a likelihood there that something's going to go a bit peetong and someone's going to die. Therefore, we need to put some controls on it. Arguably, we need to use the least the, the least aversive, right? We want to use the thing that's that's effective, that's timely, that works quickly. In terms of owner compliance, it needs to be quite easy. Um, and that is, you know, the, the kindest thing for the dog. And then you see trainers put these head collars on them where all their skin is squished up into their eyes. The dogs are trying to get it off. They're like, they're snowballing down the road trying to get this haughty off. And when you say to the trainer, well, you know, if you thought about teaching the dog um, like to yield to pressure and use a slip lead or something like that instead, oh, no, that'd be so cruel. That'd be horrific. Right. And it's like, I don't know where certain things got the label of this is an aversive thing and this is not an aversive thing. And therefore, we can use this in any given situation ethically, but we can't use this in any situation ethically. But it it goes against the laws of common sense. Yes, this is where this this in particular is one of the number one problems that we have because we cannot we cannot accept the fact that there is levels of of using aversive. There is levels of using uh, any form of reinforcement, any form of punishment, and And when you read, like when you go to the pet store and you buy a no-pull harness and and it tells you how how it works, it's just so misleading. And yeah. what is wrong to say that this is this is why it works and maybe it's safer and more, uh, um, uh, you know, if you if you don't like another option as a prong collar with all these spikes on the dog's neck. Mm -hmm. There is another mm -hmm. option that works exactly in the same principle, but this and this can be avoided. Instead of painting a completely different per picture just for the for the sake of marketing or 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 yeah. but that's where it gets so confusing and people And it's perpetuated. It's constantly perpetuated. I was writing a course for for someone, um, and they asked me. They rang me up and they said, "Oh, it's all fine, but I'm a bit worried because you've used the word pressure a couple of times in here." And I was like, "Yeah, because we are, you know, we're putting pressure on the dogs. Yeah, but we don't like that." I'm like, "Why?" And they're like, "Because it's, you know, there's a connotation there that, you know, that's what, you know, balance trainers are using pressure." And I'm like, "I don't care. Like that's like." I'm, I'm not not going to say it's pressure, like because pressure is one of the most important forms of dog training to understand. Like it always, I watched a, I was watching a TikTok the other day, and it was just one of those coincidences that I that I scrolled from, I scrolled from one balance trainer who was who, and he um he had a German Shepherd on a lead in a muzzle, and he's walking it past another dog, and he talks about um putting spatial pressure, using spatial pressure to guide the dog in the other direction. So he stands, he does that whole typical blocking thing where he blocks in front of the dog and 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 the dog can't see the other dog. So he moves out of the way and then he rewards the dog and they walk off in the other direction. And I don't agree with everything that guy does, but that's that's in mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm, in that mm -hmm. video, that's what I saw, that's what he did. And then I happened to scroll and then there was a, a positive reinforcement trainer saying, we don't need all these tools, we don't need blah, 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 blah. She had a pit bull on the end of a, a, a long line, actually. And she did exactly the same move, but called it, she, we're guiding the dog around, showing him, you know, blocking his visual so that he doesn't have to see. And I'm like, you're doing exactly the same. 
but you're criticizing this guy for using spatial pressure. You are using spatial pressure exactly the same. You just haven't been taught to you to call it spatial pressure because you're scared of the word spatial pressure because you think that that's going to be connected with some camp of dog trainer that isn't you. Like it's mad. This this the, the 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 words are like really crazy. Like there was a and and this is done quite often now. They like um in California, University of Davis, they teaching their in their behavior classes does the students and they make um um like a they caution them when you read certain keywords in on a website or certain phrases that that's uh immediately should be you you definitely classify them as something uh, a very um you know a bad idea like like for example i i will i'll read some of you of those like um so so they have a and it's on their websites it's like caution with these phrases on the website guarantees dominance alpha pack no treats boot camp board and train schutzhund ring balance training motivational training negative reinforcement protection police training remote leash free e-collar canine in the name so they they are basically teaching in class that any of these words already put you in a certain category of a bad trainer that it's doing horrible things to dogs. God, I'm buggered then, aren't I? Because I like it's off. Right? Like, like. <laughs> um, it's just, it is, it is, it's crazy. It is a crazy word. I really think the only way forward is essentially us all just completely dropping it and calling ourselves dog trainers. Yeah. Like I, I genuinely think if there was some sort of a like thing where we go, why don't we like let's all just call ourselves dog trainers? Because I think the best balance trainers that I've worked with, you wouldn't you would you would barely know they were balance trainers until the end of their until the the end of what they're doing. Um and the best reinforcement tra- reinforcement based trainers that I that I see still give the dogs very clear consequences. Like I get told off um on my social media quite a lot by the more extremists about using mistake markers, about saying, ah, when the dog gets it wrong. Um, right. And I can see that argument because their argument is that, you know, that's that's clearly aversive to your dog. Um, like you can see it in the body language of the dog. I, I agree. I'm, I, I'm glad because otherwise I've got nothing to tell them when they've got it wrong. Like I, I want my dog to go, oh, are you disappointed in me? Uh, do you do you not like that? Do you not want me to do that? I want him to feel like that or her because otherwise, how else can I tell them? And and I, like I I do believe that often, and especially with these types of dogs, often they are so sensitive that I think that the verbal communication stuff is often underutilized because because I think that actually if we talk to our dogs more um, and show them how we feel more with our body language and our expression and like building anticipation and all that kind of stuff I think we can we can develop such a great communication system with them that a lot of the things that are hard to fade like toys and food and tools and all that kind of stuff are, are a lot less necessary because we're, we're talking to each other in like a like a literal fluid language where we're giving information to them and they're giving information to us slightly like heard him say talking which um, is where we and, go on go on sorry and and i just think um i think that dogs are so 
are so sensitive to how we feel about them because it's literally what they've been bred to be as a species like we've co-evolved that's you know the main differences between wolves and dogs is their cooperation with us and like that they're so born to listen to us and to take our cues understand not just how we say it but you know even the latest studies have, 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 have produced data that suggests that dogs understand the words that we say and whether or not the words that we say are are, are being said in a way even when it's not been trained and things like this um that I, that I just think that that we should be using that we can use that so effectively in training for yeah yeah but they're so like they want to do most dogs want to do the right thing like if if you have a good relationship with your dog on the training field they they, they want to get it right like i don't have any i have no doubt my dog wants to get it right i have a question yes I, I I don't know if we talked about it, you know, we've been talking quite a bit, so um, um, it's been a lot of fun, uh, but it's something in my head and it's not specifically between our conversation, just one of those, you know, thoughts that come and, and we know that when you do positive training and we are trying to avoid form of punishment or, or negative reinforcement, um, especially like on the punishment side, we, we think like the, the, the idea is that we, and I'm, I'm going to say it in, don't take it quite literally, but, but, uh, you know, uh, it just, it brings more clarity of, of what I want to say is instead of telling the dog, this is a bad idea. Don't do that we focus on derailing the dog to wanting to do something else, which is right. The, all the differential reinforcement programs mm -hmm. that are quite successful. Sometimes they are very time consuming and mm -hmm. in some situations they are not enough to accomplish a goal. Mm -hmm. But, yes. but let's say like the, the thing that keeps them coming back to is how, like, let's say when you do that, and you derail the dog. And again, it's not the right word. I don't want it to sound wrong, but we're deflecting the dog into something else. And the fact that there is this one thing that we don't want him to do, but the dog really never gets that message from me that, hey, I don't want you to do that. Or even if you do that, it's just a bad idea. But instead, so, uh, we put so much work on, on the other side of focusing on what else to do and never really explaining, which can be quite simple to explain. Why, why is that notion? Why, why are we taking that extreme way of doing it? To me, it's an extreme way of doing it. And if we add some combination of both, seems to me that that would be the more ideal picture so I was thinking about this um, and I was thinking about exactly this, really. I was thinking about this in terms of because I was thinking um, after I had a different I had a, I had a conversation with a different trainer the other day um, and I was talking to them about um, <laughs> about if you like about where you sit on that line. And they were like, where do you like, where do you sit on that? And, and I was thinking about exactly this. So I was thinking about dog aggression and I was thinking about how, you know, often when we have a dog that's let's say the dog's um, 
let's say the dog is genetically motivated to fight. So let's say we've got a game bred pit bull and he wants to fight the other dog. And that's that's what he wants to do. So let's take fear, which is nine times out of 10 fear is, is involved, but let's take that out of it because it makes it a bit more complicated. And let's say we've got, um, we've got a bully breed that's desperate to have a scrap with the other dogs. He's quite offensive, aggressive. He sees the other dogs and he kicks off. And in positive training, we tend to um, we tend to re- remove the dog or reduce the trigger or give enough distance so that the dog doesn't kick off or that the, the kickoff is very, very low and <clears throat> work the dog to, let's say, look and look away from the trigger. Uh, and if the dog kicks off, we just start that repetition again. And and the more, you know, the, the, the better trainers uh, that, that I work with, we work very hard to, to surf the threshold and to kind of try and try and always stay on that the distance where the dog's about to kick off. But they're which but is they the, the, the perfect the, that should be the, the standard, so, right? I, I wish it was. I wish it was, because in reality, so many people work so far back that it's going to take them 30 years. But you know ultimately we want we want to work on that real threshold uh, to push that threshold because the closer we are to it the further we, the, you know the quicker we can push it towards the other dog and the quicker we're going to make progress um and i think that actually we, we the good trainers that i work with certainly when i train dogs i think i make it very clear what i don't want them to do i just i just don't i just don't add I just don't add something that necessarily startles or adds pain or adds pressure or adds or does anything to that dog. And I think I add it later on in the program. So if I'm going to train that dog, the first thing I'm going to do is train the like whatever it is I want them to. Let's say the goal is to be able to do like a pat, like the goal is to be able to walk through the dog park on the lead without the dog kicking off. And if dog other dogs come and sniff it, irrelevant, the dog can walk free because that's, I call that an anti-socialization protocol. I use it with dogs quite a lot. So my my aim for my dog owner is to be able to have their pit bull on a loose lead walking through the dog park, other dogs coming to say hello, and their dog just says, nope, I'm I'm walking, I'm walking, and doesn't kick off. Because if they can do that, then generally they can go out in town and go to the coffee shop and and all that sort of stuff. Um, So the first thing I'm going to do is take the dog away from that situation and train it what I want it to do. So I'm going to train it loose lead if it hasn't got loose lead and probably some eye contact exercises. Then I'm going to take it into the situation without the trigger, so outside, but without the trigger, and work on some engagement so that the dog is engaging with the owner. right? And I think it doesn't matter what what we use, what tools we use, we probably all do some approximation of that to start mm-hmm. with. Dog knows what we want it to do. Dog is engaging with the owner. We then take the dog into the situation with the trigger, and what I see balance trainers doing if I'm honest and I and I do work with a lot of them but what I see the vast majority of them doing if I'm honest is they take the dog out into the situation and they will immediately start using corrections on the dog for kicking off right right Right. Um, and and for the time being let's not worry about what corrections they use we can talk about that in a minute but whatever it is it's usually quite a big correction it's usually some form of physical correction whether or not it's on a slip or a prong or whatever right and they immediately do that now as a as as a let's say positive trainer i would i take the dog in first i i ask them to perform the behavior that i've been training them to do and i jackpot that and i give them shit tons of like yes good dog shaframa party i then work towards threshold and get to threshold start trying to surf that threshold and and give them ample, ample, ample reward for doing it. 
if they make a mistake and they go over threshold, I'm not a, a trainer who would ignore that because that's that's ludicrous. It doesn't give anything to the dog at all. I'll make it known to the dog. But I guess the main difference would be the the level of aversive because I'll use my voice and I'll say, ah, no, and we'll walk the other direction. No, come on. Especially if it's a dog that wants to scrap because ultimately they want proximity to the dog. Yeah. So I'll, I'll take the dog away come on and i'll start the rep again no we're starting again and i'll make my disappointment in them known and i'll say "Mm -mm, like that's that's not that's not okay for me i'm not happy about that i'm i'm not giving you treats for that all the verbal stuff of going good well done lovely that the dog naturally as a being as we've discussed usually desires and and in nine times out of ten i would say that i'm very very quickly able to work through those protocols and get the dog doing what i needed to do without needing to to use the corrections and certainly without using needing to use the corrections first my ultimately my criticism of a lot of the trainers that i see the my, my criticism of the positive trainers that i see is that most of them work too far away from the threshold that they're making progress so slowly like i've blown my head off by the time that the dog's anywhere near another dog a b that they haven't trained effectively the behavior that they want good enough that the dog really understands what they need to be doing. And so there's some not very much clarity in there. And B, that they're so scared to use anything aversive, that they're scared to say no. They're scared of any level of stress from the dog if they do say no. And they're scared to use body language and moving away and things like that it, to show the dog what they don't want them to do. That, but if they if they can, if they're able to do those three things, generally speaking, I see fast progress. I see dogs completing their goals. It, it's all good. With the balance trainers, what I tend to see is being very trigger happy, straight away using the corrections before they've shown the dog really what they want it to do. And working in a way that rather than encouraging the dog to do what they want it to do, they work, they put so much more money into suppressing the dog against what they don't want it to do. And to me, that ends up with a dog that's flatter, not always, but generally a dog that's flatter. Um, so so just not as enjoyable and not as happy in their attitude and what they're doing. Um, a dog that's the relationship between the handler and the dog, if the handler is handling the dog, has been tarnished in a little way. Again, sometimes with these really pushy dominant dogs, that can be a productive thing, but it's definitely something that I've seen. And um, a dog that is more likely then to kick over, over and to go over threshold every now and again to go. I don't get anything good for getting it right. I know I might get told off, but I think getting told off is probably worth it and having a little pop. So I think there's pros and cons to both, but I think I, I think I think if you sit anywhere in following that process and if the dog will respond to moving away and verbal, et cetera, et cetera, you can you can get good progress. And with the dogs that do require or that do um that, that don't work very well off of that, if you find a decent balance trainer that that uses a similar process, but that just uses kind of the the amount of aversive they need to at that later at that later stage in the process, then I think you end up with a good result. But unfortunately right. you don't you very you very often see the two extremes where 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 people are getting it wrong. Yeah. Yeah that's true. Does that make sense? Yeah that's 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 what I think as well. Um hmm. it is so the, I think- the balance trainers for sure well not again just as you said I don't even want to repeat what you said because <laughs> it's it's exactly how I feel. Um there there's this thing of of oh what is your prob- dog's problem? And the owner says, this is my problem. And the balance, the, the not 
good balance trainer. I have to emphasize this. They they will just jump right in there just to show the owner that they can suppress the behavior right here and now. And and as you said, that's that's a in in a lot of ways counterproductive. Uh, you know, you you definitely can work it on a small, um, you know, teach some concepts, work with low re- level of arousal, then eventually lead to the where where the problems really are. But now you have so much, you're you're, you're equipped exactly, and then you find out that in some cases, just as you say, may not be even necessary because mm-hmm. the dog now has other things to do. I think overall in dog training, the majority of dogs don't have problems. They just, they're just left out to do whatever they think they can do and they have no structure and no purpose and they're just bouncing off the walls, having some energy and desire to do and not knowing what. So they, they end up being, you know, what the owner would consider being a problem dog and, and it takes very little interaction and guidance to where to understand that the dog really doesn't have problems. It's just that they're just left alone to do whatever they want to. So they get themselves in trouble because what do you do when you, when you have no guidance, right? I think, I think, um, I think one of the problems is that there are quite, I think that as, as someone who comes from the, like the positive trainer, uh, label or whatever uh, I think that sometimes it's quite difficult because I do see the overuse of punishment and also sometimes the over like some some obviously all punishments aren't equal and um, actually I think I think we talked about this last time mm-hmm. but like I, I, like I, when I think of for example your punishment event I feel like it uses I feel like it uses our understanding of dogs in a way that we're we're giving the dog like the worst possible situation very quickly because we're preventing them from communicating to us because we're isolating them from appeasing and we're isolating them from trying to provide the right answer and we're giving them the personal aspect of it where we know that they're designed to 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 get a lot from that that relationship and then we're also giving them the pain slash startle slash aversive whatever you want to call it of a even tiny correction and I can't help but think that from like from someone who and I know last time we talked about me having not seen it and it, it being much smaller than what I think in reality. But from someone who doesn't use that kind of thing in training, it's hard to hear because I, I can't help but go, well, what what could a do- what, what could a dog do that would possibly warrant using all of their weaknesses against them like that? You know? Yeah. And I think that's maybe where where balance training and and uh, I don't know I don't even know what to call it non balance training <laughs> where that line in the sand people from that side of that land in that sand find it really difficult with this people in this line of the sand because when we hear about and when we see those those types of of, of punishments when you you go I don't I can't think I can't conceive of a behavior other than biting a baby but the motivation to bite someone is so varied that there are so many different attributes to that that even that isn't that simple I can't think of a I can't think of a behavior that would ever warrant the dog to have its weaknesses utilized against it like that yeah that's a 
Uh, and as you said, we, we did try to hash this out. And I, I talked with, um, you know, uh, uh, Nick Benger, right? Um, yeah. I talked to him, which we will release the podcast soon. And mm-hmm. we kind of got stuck in that loop for a, for quite some time, just as we did uh, in our first conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and that really made me think very deep into this. Um, and um, the, the really the only way for us to, to understand this, to, to come to some place and, and to where we can evaluate it, not necessarily agree, but evaluate what is going on and what the levels are, is that we have to do training together. If we don't yeah. do training together, we are really left alone with our uh, uh, imagination where this goes and what it looks like. And when yeah. we mention a word punishment, which is so loaded and it's so, oh. uh, um, um, it, it, like it, it just brings a lot of baggage. You need to re- you need to rebrand it. But I don't necessarily <laughs> think we need to change the word. I think the word is perfectly no, fine. No, I meant I meant your your the punishment event. Maybe you need to rebrand it and call it something else. Mm. Because the the I the the whole purpose of when you to to like like really the biggest. There is, there is ways, of course. Uh, I'm speaking for what I teach. And mm-hmm. the idea to punish when, when punishment is needed, and this is, you know, on the discretion of, of what, what you're working, and if you decide that that's what you need to do, but you're still in the Lima situation very much. We're yeah. never, never... The, the, like there is no no question that going after like high level of intensity or duration or whatever is what needs to happen. Punishment really revolves around a message that says, don't do that and that's a bad idea. And yeah. one of the, like, like one of the things that I teach is very similar what we were talking just a minute ago about uh, how you would present the differential reinforcement. You will approach a threshold where the dog can get challenged, but you're still managing to have a return. And uh, um, the same goes with punishment. It's, uh, you know, there is, there is, there is some learning that needs to happen just as a concept where we say, Hey, this is, this is a bad idea. And the whole, that, that the actual application is with the intention to do the least possible and be, and be effective because mm-hmm. we know that if you go full all in, mm-hmm. it's gonna fire back in, in something. There is no, for one thing, there is no learning because now, mm-hmm. now the dog is just preoccupied with, am I gonna make it through? Am I gonna be alive in the next five minutes or no? Like there, there is just no place for that. Mm-hmm. But when I talk to, uh, um, like the more I talk now, because it's been very, very 
educational for me. The more I talk about punishment with with you and and with with some other trainers, it just there is no like it just goes over there, you yeah. know, like it's the boom. And for me to explain that this is unacceptable and that mm-hmm. we are actually we can apply punishment in a very low levels mm-hmm. that tell the dog don't do it there is consequences for that when the dog is in a right mindset which is a whole different thing yeah then then you're not like like really the idea with punishment is not to to put the dog in this situation when the dog is like Oh, I'm gonna whatever, and now I go. No, no, you cannot. There is no way you can win this, and I will mm-hmm. show you how. That's really uh, uh, one of the the big things that I think. Uh, what what I have started to think that I will do is uh, create an event. I think what you're talking about. I think what you're talking about is um, <clears throat> is what I see is like windows. Like we're always looking for windows to explain to the dog aren't we we're looking for and sometimes when you get a dog in a certain state or when you get a dog that's reacting a certain way it can be quite difficult to open the window uh in a way where you're like for example if you get one of those dogs out and they're like you know you get those dogs out that are like fixated on the trigger so let's say they're human aggressive and they're just fixated on it and you, you can't get you know there's nothing you can really do you're you're looking up for windows. And I think in some of those situations, I think, although I don't employ those techniques myself, I can see how it would be perfectly ethical to give the dog a correction here, just to open the window to something else, just to say to the dog, come on, like there's something else now. Right. That is mm-hmm. one of the biggest arguments that I have about like the, the, the positive side effects of punishment is that they, you know, you, you do open the door for good behaviors to happen so you can reinforce it. Good behaviors start to happen more frequently because you have suppressed the one that you don't like. And, um, I, and I totally get that. Like, like from a, from a positive training perspective, I, I totally, I fully understand that because I can see how, and, and the same way that, that, that medication is so often misused because medication yeah, should be Yeah, we want to talk that. about medication. Med- I have it in my notes. We have to talk about that. <laughs> So, so for me, medication should be that. It should be that. It should be in, in, in vast majority of the time, unless there's a unless there's a sufficient chemical imbalance or the dog is abnormal. When we're using medication to treat normal dogs for behaviour, then all that should do is provide a short a short um, uh, a short duration window for training, right? That's, that's what it should do. It should be exactly the same as those questions. It's as ethical in terms of, it's just a different way of doing it. And we say, well, like, I'm going to put the dog on Fluxine or I'm going to put the dog on Xanax and, and I'm going to provide a very short, a, sh- a short-term solution where, where I'm giving this dog a window to learn something else, like travelling in the car or fireworks or something like that, because they're so fixated on the anxiety or they're so they're so engulfed in the anxiety that I can't train them, and therefore I'm going to give them I'm going to give them Xanax on on fireworks night so that it gives me, or I'm going to give them Xanax when I train them to noise sensitivity so that it gives me a window I can open a window for it, and it is it's often misused. Like more often than not, I would say, I would say it's very rare that it is used like that. But I would also say that's the same when it comes to using corrections, you know, because 
like in the vast majority of, of situations, like there's been a few situations where I've been training with a balanced trainer and I've said to them, do you think you could do that? Like, do you think you could do it without the prong? I was like, just put it on the flat collar, do exactly the same. Because I think this dog's like, this dog doesn't, doesn't need that. And they've done it. They've gone, all right, let's give it a go. And they've taken it off and they've put the dog on a flat collar and, and they've done exactly the same, very little correction. And the outcome's been exactly the same. And afterwards they've gone, yeah, fair play, fair play. Like I didn't, I didn't need to do that. Like it wouldn't, but I think, I think there isn't, there doesn't appear to be an emphasis when people are taught how to use corrections on going for those low level ones. And I'm not talking about what we're not talking about is like, like, like I, I listened to your, the video that you put out again, I think I listened to it before when he first put it out, but I'm not talking about in any way desensitizing the dog to a very low level thing so that they're kind of desensitized to it and say so it doesn't, it's still a starter and it's still aversive. But I think, I think perhaps the positive community would have less of a problem with balanced trainers if they followed the approach of teaching the dog the right behavior first, looking for windows for reinforcement, using corrections to create windows for reinforcement and using corrections in the lowest way that they can for that particular right. dog. But that's not that's never what we see. I think I've probably seen that once or twice with very slick trainers. Like yeah. it's just not and what that's, you see. That that's um I mean this is again this is the evolution and the hope that at least I have, and then few few tra trainers that I talk to have, that we're getting better and changing that. And mm. like everything that, like let's go back to the example with the aggression and the differential reinforcement and getting to that particular window to where you can be right there, mm -hmm. but you can deflect mm -hmm. successfully. Now, in that situation, when we add some form of aversive, mm -hmm. we have to agree that form of aversive is, it absolutely doesn't require even an average level. It has to be aversive, otherwise we, we we are actually, you know, shooting our I have, feet. I have right? no problem with the word aversive, like right. I understand, like it could literally just be touching the dog on the back and that could be enough right. for some dogs. Yeah. And yeah. so and so as we're playing with the differential reinforcement and we reach there and we apply some in let's let's call it enough aversive. Mm -hmm. And we go back to differential reinforcement. Now yeah. we have covered both grounds. We have clearly said mm -hmm. this is not worth it. But guess what? There is all these cool things we have. And as you're making your progression, it is very similar progression that I'm suggesting. It just adds the element of not focusing only this is what I want you to do, but also says that that's not what we want to do. Like clearly says this is not what we want to do. When we are mm -hmm. playing with distance, when we have this proper level of arousal, we c we absolutely can use. Uh, uh, we can start with a verbal, and and verbal is somehow a, it is a conditioned punisher if if the dog oh, is sure, to respond sure, it to it, right? And it's based on relationship, and it's based on like there's no. I don't I don't have any problems. People have asked me before. Do you think when you say nay uh, to fiasco? When when you're training her, do you think that it's conditioned punisher? I'm like, yeah, of course it is. It doesn't have to have a consequence. The consequence is me being upset with her, but that is 
still an aversive consequence. Otherwise, she wouldn't stop or reduce the behavior, in which case it'd be a pointless waste of my time. Right. And so so that's really like the, the I mean, the steps are not that different and the dog understands right. as a concept how things are moving. Um, right. In the, in the example you've given, the steps are exactly the same. The, the only that- difference is that you like when you avoid the aversive side of things it's kind of left to dogs discretion to maybe make the assumption that we don't want them to do that but it's never very directly uh stated right I guess I guess what we've done here is we've actually managed in an example to find the exact the line the line in the sand between balanced and positive because I would argue that I do the same and when and, and I would argue that some good good trainers that I know you do the same and there's just different language around it so mm-hmm. that you often call it a positive interrupter and you go right you move the dog right or you call it you call it whatever you want um, and where when it's called a positive interrupter you move the dog's focus move it away with a noise and then you feed it a treat for getting it right and when you call it but but equally if you were to use i don't know more of a noise so let's say the of a pet corrector or something so all that all that's different there is the volume of the noise but let's say that you use that volume of the noise and you could call that an aversive and say that it opened a window for reinforcement and then feed the dog the process is exactly the same it's just the language we use to describe it denotes whether or not we class it as balanced training or positive training so so really what we've defined there is the line in the sand and then my my guess is that depending on whether or not you classify yourself as a balanced trainer or, an, or or not would be how far how far you're willing to <clears throat> how far you're willing to choose time and efficacy over uh over relationship because where i go or where i've been in the past in the last like 15 16 17 years or whatever um, when I've been training dogs in that situation is that I've never had to go over using a uh, uh, note and, and removing the dog or, or, or whatever, using those kind of low level uh, consequences. But I would argue that my training could have been more effective and quicker had I have put in a, a punishment there. And, and um, whereas if I was a balanced trainer, I would argue that I could have just, if I just put a slip lead on the dog in that situation and given it a correction, I could have overcome that issue um, a lot quicker, reduced the stress of the owner and the dog a lot quicker um, and to, to no real detriment to the dog. And therefore, all, all we're arguing, all we're arguing about there is how, how aversive should we go in an individual case in order to weigh up the importance of time and efficacy and obviously that will depend on the owner and the dog's situation if the dog's in a rescue waiting to be homed then obviously their time's really important you've got to get it done as quick as possible if a dog's in a happy home where they're able to walk the dog freely without this situation occurring then we've got a little bit longer and we might as well do it the ethical way but the the, the problem so, so i think that's that's what you've described is exactly the line in the sand mm. but the, the problem is, is that I never see balance trainers using that technique. Like, I think it's the right way to go. I just yeah. don't ever see it. Like in all the balance training that I see, I see them putting it, putting the dog in the situation and using corrections immediately. Yeah. So this and, is, and, um, and, that's, that's the whole, I mean, again, it's not, I, I hope it's not just me, but like this, this is um, like if, if there is two things that are 
no, this I, I cannot say it like this. I just want to <laughs> say what is the most important things that I teach in my school for dog trainers. But uh, um, it's such an intensive program that it's all all that is there is important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is one of the, you know, a big, big three, if you want to think that way, um, mm-hmm. that that punishment does not mean what it means for so many trainers on, on either side. Um, sure. And, and it's a, it's a very, I, I, I don't know, like it, the, the, the only way to do this is to, to start to, to get together in different mm-hmm. places, you know? And, and we start to, to talk and, but not just talk, but actually train. Like, let's say we like, um, and I, I know that's gonna maybe come for, for other trainers now that listening, um, hopefully they do the same and hopefully they do the right teaching because I, I mean, as, as you see in, in my social media, at least I, I, I'm very strongly opinionated in certain things and I don't like certain trainings. Um, yeah. um, and that doesn't mean that they, you know, they don't work or it's just to me, I, I have a better way. Just like, as you say, you can, you don't ever find the need to do, to use aversive. Um, well, I, I, I want to caveat that actually. And I want to caveat that, mm. caveat that for a couple of reasons, but, but because as as a as a quite quite a, a seasoned a seasoned behaviorist these days, um, I would say that I, I generally don't find the need to use higher level aversives, and it. But there are some exceptions to that because I, I, I'm really I'm very passionate about not creating an unrealistic situation, an unrealistic. I don't want to paint an unrealistic picture whereby you know when I was growing into it there was lots of people that would tell me you could shape anything you can shape anything with a clicker and that's bullshit you can't and there's lots of people everything is possible with positive reinforcement only that's bullshit you can't like it's just just not true um and so i i don't want to paint an unrealistic picture i have done cases predation cases namely in one dog aggressive case but but name mainly predation cases that that i know would be unethical for me to try and fix with um with my methods in terms of how long it would take and i think really importantly and we should probably talk about it in a minute but really importantly owner compliance like whether or not it's one thing me taking a predatory dog and training it day in day out using toys using motivation using my understanding and knowledge of competing motivators through training ring sports and things like this but when you've got you know Jane and Jim, who, who who bought their lovely dog and had absolutely, it's their first dog and have, have, have got no idea. I, I can't train them those skills. I can't, not only would they not have the, not not have the mechanics to do it in a way that was would be good enough for the dog to train the dog, but also the, the the amount of training that would be required would be completely unrealistic. And so there has been cases like that that I have sent to, to an e-collar trainer um, to train. And I have, I sleep at night with that because I know that, that the alternative for that would have been death for those dogs. And uh, to me, there's nothing more aversive really than death other than torture. Um, right. uh, and 
So, and I don't believe that the, 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 the training, that the, the short-term training that, that that was undertaken for those dogs was in any way torturous at all. Um, and I always encourage the owners to go and watch it. And so far, they always have, and they always come back and go, "Oh my god, it was a lot less than I thought it would be." All of them. That's always what they say. But it's um, it, it, it isn't. It isn't. I haven't. I haven't had that. I haven't had. You know. 16 years or 17 years, I don't know, now I must count, um, training these dogs and fostering these dogs and rehabbing these dogs and all this just, uh, and and been like, this is super easy. I, I'm in a situation sim- similar to you probably, where I'm very good at what I do. I'm very skilled at the mechanics and what I do, at, but that that comes with a price and a responsibility. And the price is that I'm able to change the behavior of dogs that I foster and that I rehab, that I know that other people wouldn't have been able to change. And, and, that I ha- comes with the responsibility of me knowing that there are owners that I work with that 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 won't be able to do that, and right. and and trainers too. Sometimes you know you you meet trainers and you think, God, I've got to explain this really really complex thing to you now, and I'm not entirely sure whether or not you're going to be able to understand it and do it properly, or whether or not it's going to end up as Chinese whispers, and you know you're going to be doing it badly down the park next week, and it's going to be worse than it was before. Um, and so, there so is it's not, levels it's not also, there is levels, then there is different dogs and um, difficult, such a difficult topic and, and uh, always kind of going into a, a vicious circle. Um, one, one of the things that you, I, I will always hear is, I have a dog and I never have to do any of the things that you're doing. And therefore, there is better ways than than doing this to a dog. And, and it's, it can be true. It really can be true. Mm-hmm. But it also can be so misleading and so harmful to assume that because your dog has no similar desires and, and genetic drives than another dog, that we 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 can have the one size fit all glove. Um, Absolutely. I had. Uh, I, I always say to people, if it's that easy, then why haven't we all got dogs as good as the homeless guys' dogs? Yeah, because their dogs, dogs are, are beautifully, beautifully behaved. Or the feral dogs that live here, like in terms of their social abilities, their how road smart they are, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. You know, if it was that easy, if it was if it was that simple, and, and the real case of it is that the ones that aren't good at it out there die. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's the truth of the matter. Um, and uh, it, like you say, it's it, it's it's a real tough one because a lot more dogs, like we don't, you know, we don't. A lot more dogs now are do seem to have problems, partly because of the expectations we put on them, partly because of the genetics and because we're breeding them pointlessly a lot of the time for form over function. And, you know, there's there's lots of things that go into that, partly because everybody's so scared of stress that they're building glass houses. Um, but but we are ending up with with a lot of dogs with problems. And I, I, I agree that I think it's it's um, it's and predation is so interesting, too, because you yeah. have um, you have so so many like i i was um uh, in one of my co- i think it was with steve Lindsay. we were talking about predation quite a bit and mm-hmm. one of the one of the things that i had to bring up was i 
one uh, um, one of my dogs, he passed away a while back. But when I was working at San Francisco SPCA, he would come to work with me. And at the time, the SPCA wasn't like dogs and cats. I mean, you can see rabbits, chickens, and all sorts of exotic things there. So my office, which was a very small room, like I never knew what I'm gonna walk into in the morning. I mean, they and they will be some in cages and some just free random uh-huh. animals, you know? And my, that particular dog was a dog that I had to convince him if I give him a, a raw chicken tie, I had to convince him that it's okay to eat this. Mm-hmm. And I would leave him with rabbits and chickens in this room and I would go mm-hmm. and evaluate and train dogs all day. And there would be times that I would leave and forget him and come back to pick him up because my brain sometimes does this to me. I'm like, oh shit, I did. I have to go back. My dog is still there. Where I'm going with this is there is dogs that it's this predation instinct is so dormant. It's not that it's not there, but it's so dormant that it's so easy for somebody to say, well, my dog never chases squirrels and never does this and it just doesn't have interest. And I believe it because I, I see it all the time. There is this kind of dogs. Then there yeah. is dogs that are one level above that. And mm-hmm. there is dogs that are one level above that. And it so yeah, goes and, and, further and, and further. Is that even though there are trends in breeds, you see that even within breeds. Like I've got three three manis in here, and this one, for whatever reason, isn't predatory. He just isn't. Like I can I can take him to the park to the where the, with a duck pond. Yeah, ducks everywhere. If I was to take the younger one over there, she she'd be. I'd have to be on her. Like I'd have to be watching her all the time and like come here like night because she she chase him otherwise. This one, he'll walk right up to a duck and be like, all right, but nothing. Like he's he's got a a, a lovely play drive for for training but i can walk him up to a donkey if horses come cantering through the marshes when i'm walking down the marsh i wouldn't have to i wouldn't have to give him a second of thought right and people are really surprised about that because he's a mally and often i've said oh i could do a really good cheat video with him because everyone says like oh train you know train a high drive dog like a malia recall off off um off birds off ducks off off whatever go on and i always think i could cheat really easily with him because i could send him on to them in a send away or just send him on to them and recall him this far away from them but not because of my good training just because he just doesn't he's just not that way inclined Uh, and and it can sometimes be quite unexpected like because his play drive is through the roof and he bites lovely and he chases anyone that moves like when it comes to things like that but just some dogs haven't got like you say they just it's just not there it's just not there but when it is there and it's there seriously, it's so instinctual. It's so different to any other behavior we work with, isn't it? Yes. Like it's, it's, yes. And, and this, this like uh, the, with this study that I'm doing, it, it gets so interesting. Like I've learned so much and I wish one day soon I can openly talk about everything that I learned because I, I can just, I cannot hold it anymore. Like it's just so cool stuff, you know, like, so I, I wonder. I, I wonder whether or not whether or not this is whether or not it means anything to you about this. So, obviously, I came from a background of academia, and then I came from a background of experience working behaviour cases, and no experience in bite work until I started doing Mondio. Uh, how old is he? Six, so seven years ago. And um, when I first started doing bite work, 
something that really confused me based on my background was this idea that that, that they would that they would refer to it as prey drive. Mm-hmm. And it used to blow my mind because I'd be like, this has nothing to do with predation. And like they'd be like, yeah, because it's chasing. And I'm like, this is just play drive. This is just not wanting to play. Like, and it still blows my mind. And I've had conversations with with some with some decoys who are like, no, it is it's predation. The dogs are born with predation. And I'm like, well, his prey drive's brilliant, but he won't he won't predate on anything. Yeah. Like it's not the same thing. It is not the same thing. It's not the same sequence. It's not the same. The dog is not in predation when they're after a decoy. And I've heard lots of, and I hate to say it, but I've heard lots of positive trainers kind of use that and go, yeah, well, how can you recall the dog off a decoy? Because they're, you know, when they're in prey drive there, like it's the same if you can do that positively, you can recall them off, you know, off killing a rabbit positively. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That it, we shouldn't call it prey drive because it isn't prey drive. It's nothing to do with prey. Yeah. So it's a good good point you're bringing, and um, like my take on it is, we can we can probably argue that when you are developing a puppy and you're working with a flirt pole, you're kind of tapping into some of that instinct to chase and catch that it's based on on prey and just to create the interest to to create the interaction, right? But mm-hmm. eventually that grows into a very different place. It becomes, yeah, we either can, can be a very controlled play or it can be uh, uh, some aggression elements also used in there. But uh, the prey itself, it's, uh, I guess some dogs, like this is my my thinking, even, even when you throw a ball to five different dogs, I think some use imagination and they're mm-hmm. truly practicing hunting skills of, of this is what I would do, which is, a, you know, a normal uh, um, development in, in even when puppies play together and they grab a feather and you know, all this stuff. So there, there is that development of skill or it can be pure play, understanding, no, this is a tennis ball and that all there is to it and i'm playing with my guy or my girl and we're doing you know just basic play um that does not i think i've i think i've i think i define it slightly differently um because i like to think of it in different like so when it comes to like coppinger's predatory action sequence um and i think there's a hole in it which i'll talk about in a minute but i think it's missing i think i think it's missing um uh possessing parade which I think should be part of that predatory action sequence. If we're going to cl- if we're going to include dissect and consume, I think possess and parade comes above dissect and consume. Possess and possess and what? Parade. Okay. You know when the dogs they move they yes. move the item, um, and and some dogs have a desire to move it and show it. So, but anyway, so you've got your scent and track, blah 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 blah. You've got your predatory action sequence. And and really, when it comes back to how we've domesticated dogs and why we've why we've got breeds, we've got breeds because we've selected different parts of the predatory action sequence to be useful, haven't we? So, for example, like we've got lamping dogs, like um, lurchers and sighthounds and stuff like that, and we've we've that's almost a complete predatory action sequence. Mm-hmm, but then mm-hmm. we've got dogs like like Hungarian Bizlers. There's one somewhere here um, that are hunt point retrievers who are about all about the eye and the stalk, yeah. and then. 
Yeah, so, so on and so forth. So we've taken these parts of the predatory action sequence and then we've either exaggerated them and we've suppressed parts of them or we've tried to make like a gap. So there's like punctuation. So, for example, my, my visitor will stalk all the way up to a, a, the statue of a bird and then she can't go into chase because the bird doesn't move. So, you know, we've created these these kind of punctuations where we've got commas and full stops between different parts, depending on what the prey does as well. But when when the dogs are bred with a with a drive to to do those those behaviours, but not in predation, I think it's something different. So, I, like I I always when I'm talking about it, I always call it selective drive because I think we've selected elements of the predatory drive, but mm-hmm. but it's not in predation. And I would I would I would stake ten grand that if we were to able to do a live fMRI scan of the dog's impredation and the dog's participating in this behavior when they're um chasing sheep or when like as in um when they're herding sheep or when they're chasing after a ball or when they're doing any of the other things hunt point retrieve like when they're when they're pointing in, in um out of a hunting situation that that it would be a completely different area of the brain because I don't think it's the same. And mm-hmm. I think when we're doing bite work with dogs, generally speaking, um, I, I shouldn't say bite work actually, because it really does depend on on what you're training and and obviously operationally it's very different. And so I shouldn't say, but certainly when I'm doing Mondio, when I'm yeah, doing sports yeah. with my dog, ultimately I'm using his selective drive. There's no element of predation in there, even though I'm using aspects of the predation in the same way that, in the same way that when my, pit, my old pit bull used to hang off the trees right um and he, he he had that typical like he was desperate to be he was a game bred fighting dog that i got from london and he was desperate to fight dogs he was desperate in in his perfect world his his absolute ideal ending would have been that i released him onto a herd of cows and he was able to go and 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 grab hold of him hold on to him until he was kicked to death like that would have been his ideal death if he could have chosen it and 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 he loved it. So if I had, I'd put spring poles and stuff and he'd go and he'd hang on to them and he'd hang on to them with his dear life, like everything depended on it. But that wasn't predation. It's part of the predatory action sequence. It's that grab bite. And we've emphasised it. But I do think that the selective drive behaviour of a dog is a different thing. And I think often it's confused. And I think often dog trainers get confused and call it prey. Or they say, oh, well, he's got real high, strong predatory drive because he's chasing cars. Or And I'm like, that's not, I don't think it's prey. It's selective drive behavior. It's what the dog's been selected to have a drive to perform. But that isn't the same as as, as predation. And I think where the differences mm-hmm. are really important when it comes to behavior problems is that I think with selective drive behavior, we see a lot of leaking. Ultimately, dogs need, most dogs need biological fulfillment of the selective drive behaviors be it on a tennis ball or on a you know spring pole in the garden they need uh access to participate in what has been what is biologically fulfilling those selective drive behaviors and if they don't get that it tends to leak out in bad behavior you know how many staffies do you see that hang on to your arm when you go around the house because they're not they're not getting that fulfillment elsewhere whereas i don't think predation leaks it doesn't leak out anywhere. It, it's only stimulated by sign stimulus. Do you see what I mean? I I do, I do. Um, yeah, we 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 have to stay on this for a little bit. <laughs> um, so the, um, if you look at dog with the intention to go and kill the rabbit, 
Mm-hmm. What what different body language? What 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 is gonna be the different things that you're gonna see there compared to a dog that is looking at a plastic bag for lure coursing, for example, that's moving similar way? I think very little in terms of the intention and the behavior of the dog. I think there will be a level of intensity. I think it's the speed of which the dog goes into behavior that that, that you see a difference. And I think that it's the, the dog's I think that it's the cognition of the dog where there's a difference mm. because I don't think that there is, um, I, I, I think, I don't think the dogs are thinking when they're in predation. I, I don't think that, that, that there isn't any cerebral activity. I think that it bypasses, it bypasses that and the dog is acting purely on instinct. And I think, I think that normally, um, I think that the law coursing one is, is tricky because I do think that sometimes is a case of mistaken identity. And I think that actually, like, you know, you had all those experiments um, uh, where they made like super sign stimulus with the predation. So you had like the ducks. Um, so birds require a um, the red bit of the beak. There are certain, what are they? There are certain gulls that require the red bit of the beak in order to open their mouth. So they need that sign stimulus of the red beak of the mother's beak coming in. And when the red, red bit of the mother's beak comes close enough, it elicits a, an instinctive response. The, the baby's not thinking, I need food, I'm gonna open my mouth. They, there is an instinct that as soon as it's close enough, they open up. So the scientists did a whole bunch of um, studies where they made different, they've made different, exa- different versions of this to see what the perimeters of the sign stimulus were. If we make a fake beak, that does that. That's a different shape. Do that? Does the bird still open their mouth? If we make a shape, uh, uh, if we use a ball that's literally got a red bit on the top, does the bird still open its mouth? And effectively, they ended up with something little, a little bit like this actually, which which just ha- which just like a big red long tip. And they found that the only thing that the bird really really needed was was the red tip of it, and that the bigger the red tip, the the quicker the birds were able to open their mouth. Right. And so they called it super sign stimulus. Mm-hmm. And that's when something has enough of the attributes to um, elicit the instinctive response. And I think when it comes to predation, there are certain things. So like a plastic bag on a lure, for example, um, when you're looking at track greyhounds and things like that, that that the sign stimulus is actually super sign stimulus. There's enough enough of the trigger is exactly the same that it elicits the same predatory response. But I think it's it's unusual for us to find that in in dogs. I think it's unusual. Like so, for some HPRs, especially when they're puppies, you can use a flirt pole to move in a certain way, and that will elicit the hump, the 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 point, and you can get them to do the full on stalk, and you can get them to behave in that way um, straight away based on that. But I think for the vast majority of dogs, it's very difficult to find sign stimulus that genuinely elicits predatory behaviour. Because if it was easier to find that, then we could train it, certainly using positive techniques, a lot easier. One of the hardest things about training predation is the lack of of, of genuine sign stimulus that we can control. Yeah, I like what I see is... uh... It is definitely, I, I, uh, so, so to me, play is yeah. at a certain time, 
a dog, just like a person, can look at play as mm -hmm. nothing but but activity of play, mm -hmm. or it can look it out as an activity to master mm -hmm. hunting, like just okay. really improve your skills mm -hmm. in without having the opportunity. You know, like I, I you get good at this before you ever like like for example well i mean any example really but but it uh, like i i really believe that it depends on on what the dog imagines at the moment and i think they they see it in few different ways and Do you think it the dog changes in the in in the way the dog attacks allure Mm -hmm. okay. The way the dog, what it does after it catches it, or is it inhibited, as you said, does it really even want to catch it, or does it want to just stop it and point to it, or make it move the other direction, which a border collie, when you watch yeah. a border collie, classic, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, Control uh, of border collie would, would be obsessed with trying to stop the lure moving and change its direction. That's its main purpose. And, mm -hmm. and you can see them getting frustrated that it's not working and they really, really don't want to bite it because it's, it's so far in, in it, not, yeah. not in the repertoire. Huh? But after a few days of watching that, trying to guide it and it's not working, now they start to change strategy and they, either put their foot on it to stop it mm -hmm. or they start using their mouth and all of a sudden they something is waking up now yeah. when you see a different dog like a like you know i, I, I breed malinois so i can talk in a yeah. big length of of them and so if i if i think of the dog that i described or any of these dogs that are very cool with animals and they don't think of anything they they get their food in a food dish and they are cool with that but there is different dog with a very different intention that as the lord keeps going there is only one thing and it's not by no means there is play they mm -hmm. are in serious. in a they they are so serious that when you, like, if you don't know that that's a lure and you see the determination and the mm -hmm. way they grab it and what they do with it afterwards, it's a full-blown predation, like, like to the, mm -hmm. to, to the end. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I think if we were yeah. to ask them, I think they know it's not predation. Yeah. So I, I, like, I, like I, I don't, I don't agree in that. I don't think that, I, I think that it's incredibly difficult, not not impossible i think it is possible and so i will give you a different example of a dog that would kill goats and sheep and i mean it has a history of doing that and then we present it with the lure and they show some interest to it they're chasing it but they are not showing that level of intensity that I just described. Yeah. Even and the reason they are not showing it is because they do not. 
picture, that same picture, mm-hmm. as another dog would. So it's not I think, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we we kind of this is one that if the dogs can talk, because I don't yeah. see how we can do an MRI on that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how we could. But I wish, like, like, like I'm yeah. convinced. Okay, so here's 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 a bit of an out there question. So you're talking about dogs' imagination, and I 100% agree that dogs have got an imagination. Yeah, um, I think anybody who trains would agree that dogs can imagine can imagine something. Do you think they can imagine something they've never seen? So I think about this because I think about dreams, and I think about a lot of the town dogs that I've seen that are like that have never been to the countryside before, and yet you watch them chase rabbits in their dreams, and you think, are you what's what is what's in your I doubt it's visual. It'll be it'll be olfactory. I'm almost I'm almost certain. But what is your what scent is your brain imagining? Is it the scent of rabbit? Is it so is it so ingrained in your genetics as a let's say as a pointer that you that your brain can Im- goes there even though you've never smelt a real rabbit? Can right. your brain can your brain invent a rabbit in your head as imagination? So to, that, that elicits that behavior or are you imagining something that's like fluffy and giant and looks like a blob because you can't imagine a rabbit because you've never seen a rabbit you, like or like the olfactory version of that because right. I'm just, like dogs must dream in in in, in scent I'm, I'm convinced of that yeah it would uh, be interesting i mean they can dream also <laughs> crazy shit that we dream yeah. that you wake up and you're like what Ooh. what just what was that you know what the hell do you think they do do you think they make stuff they're like oh i've just dreamed of this like like this this scent of something that doesn't even exist could, could they like part of me goes why why couldn't they right <laughs> yeah so you know like you brought an interesting point of, of, of can they so like um one one of this it's kind of you know in, in common example of evolutionary biology etology of the rabbit is already born they they cannot they cannot afford to learn to run away from a fox right yeah. this this Prepared is because yeah, otherwise yeah. it's it you know you okay. you die right it's over game over so probably when you look at it that way maybe maybe they do chase a rabbit because it's a well, you see, it's funny that you say that because, like, whenever when it comes to predation, I always I always like thinking about this because I had an epiphany once when I was in the sh- I was in the shower and there was a, it was in Spain and there was a, a quite a big uh, big spider in a web mm-hmm. right and I I don't mind spiders in the bathroom because I think they they do their job they're good at what they do as long as there's not so too you many can do okay in Florida yeah yeah <laughs> I'm okay I'm okay with that. So, so he's up there, he's doing whatever he does in his web up there, he's, he's hanging out. And I noticed that a fly comes into the shower and I watch it and it's, it's um, teasing the spider, right? I, I swear to God, it's teasing the spider. It's going over to the web, it's going near the web. It's go- and I'm looking around, I'm thinking, you've got the whole of the bathroom, the bloody windows open. Why are you teasing the spider? Like, what, why are you messing? Why are you messing with the spider? And then, um, and then later down the line, we're playing. Uh, we're I'm working at Battersea Cats and Dogs Home in, in England. Um, we, we do their staff training there, and I was, I had one of my dogs out in the paddock uh, to give it a run before I did some work with some of the staff. And 
uh, obviously the pigeons around there are, are very much acclimatized to all the dogs in the runs because they're there all day. Yep. And I've got these pigeons that are swooping down low to, it was this dog actually, to, to my Mally. And he's bounding after them and then they're swooping up again. And they've obviously got their spots in the pens that they know that they can land on quite safely, right, uh, in order to then swoop away. And it made me think, and I've, I've thought about it, and I've researched it quite a lot since, about like the, the the dance between predator and prey and how it really is a dance because obviously the, the predator needs certain behaviour from the prey in order to elicit their, their predatory action sequence. But it makes me, it made me realise that that behaviour that we consider to be based solely on fear, right, is probably quite intrinsically reinforcing because of the thrill the relief of getting yeah. away yeah. and that the, the prey is a great example of this because i think that that those birds and, and that fly uh in the shower i think all of them were participating in thrill-seeking behavior and there was an intrinsic motivation to practice their their the same way that we have our dogs that are practicing predation through play i think that these prey species also practice their prey behavior in a t- in a form of prey, in a form of play, yeah. where they're they're they're, they're thrill seeking and they're 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 teasing, and I wonder, you know, do they do they do that with each other? Do you think? Like, I wonder if the flies practice their their prey behaviour with with each other, whether they practice getting out of pretend like things that are similar to webs when they land on right. flowers, or and and whether birds chase each other. You know, you sometimes see them chasing each other through the sky. Yeah, whether or not sometimes. That's just play and whether or not actually they're practicing prey behavior yeah. just in the, in the same play that the dogs are and that there's a level of thrill seeking that that is that, that, that the prey species have to have inside them. Yeah. There has to be there has to be an intrinsic motivator to perform the prey behavior. It must feel good. It must be or it must at least require some dopamine to push the animals to keep doing it. Yeah. In order to do that. I, um, I, I'm, it, I'm with you there. I, I yeah. mean, I think in, on both sides, predator and prey, they yeah. they have their genetic predisposition to to do that. Then I I strongly believe that then then the interaction and the interaction through play is where those skills get fine tuned and and practiced, yes. and then it takes oh, it to oh. the next level where they, as you said. Uh, uh, birds will kind of chase each other and do, do crazy things or, or dogs will do the same and, um, you know, just continue to master mm-hmm. to where eventually they, they learn how to, to be who they need to be with maturity and start mm-hmm. to apply it in a real sense. And even when they apply it hunting in a real sense, I think a lot of times they would still play with a prey for the sake of, of mastering skills. I mean, you can see how many times cats will, so a really good example of spending an hour to mm-hmm. play with a mouse, not really just, just like, okay, and you can really see this, like thinking how this will happen and what's the next move of mine and what would it, you know, like I think it's there. Yeah. Um, I, I agree, and I think there's a level of enjoyment there. For both. sure. I mean, there, there has to be dogs because we know that the um, predatory behavior in predatory dogs doesn't increase when the dog's hungry, right? So that in and of itself tells us something. It tells us there has to be an intrinsic motivator to perform the behavior. The behavior itself is is reinforcing the behavior 
um, not the consequence of that behavior. One of the reasons why, at least for me, and I don't think I'm alone in this, but you know, you have these games, paintball or laser tag. Majority of people love paintball for a reason. And the reason is because there is that element of a little bit of an aversion to it, to where it's like, oh, I really avoided something real. And and it makes you, just as you say, it kind of makes you, it builds up your confidence. It makes you be, I can can deal with some situations in my life. I can handle those. Um, I think I think naturally most of us like enjoy a thrill and without a risk you can't get thrill can you thrill doesn't exist without risk there has to be the risk of something otherwise otherwise you you wouldn't feel a thrill it's why we watch scary movies and go on roller coasters and yeah and all of that and yes there's the chemical underpinnings of that but but essentially I think most most beings there are there are definitely thrill seekers and I think that comes from what you're saying I think that comes from a like if we if we look at that through an evolutionary, like we can look at we can look at that through chemistry and just say, well, it's whatever the behavior, you know, it's it's whatever the dopamine does, you know, whatever dopamine does tells us we need to do it more, and there's intrinsic reinforcement that comes through that, and blah 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 blah. If we look at it through a more interesting lens and we think about it by a lot, like um, evolutionarily, then I think that comes from a, a a deep need to build resilience. And it and it comes back to this whole thing of you know not all stress is bad and that that it's it's really important that we experience tolerable stress and overcome adversities in order to build resilience as any species ever anywhere. And 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 that circles beautifully back around to the fact that a lot of the time when we're trying so hard to avoid any level of stress, any yes. level of aversion for our dogs, we we end up building animals that can't cope in the real world. Certainly, I think that there's a there's an epidemic of of dogs that are dog aggressive and um, yeah, no, no, no. We are really handicapping them by doing this, just as you said. Yeah. Like I t- totally exactly. agree. Um, and this is how do you feel about the the whole idea of again fear fear? Like what what is your take on fear? And I'll 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 talk also. I'll share my ideas. But you know, there there is the big thing of fear-free training um, I, I think fear, or fear-free. I, I think the idea of fear-free, fear-free training is is frightening to me because I, I think that, I don't think that there was fear there in the, in the first place. I don't think it was fear, it was just stress and there's a big difference. I think that there's a couple of things spring to mind. Firstly, I think that ultimately, when I first started learning about dogs, I was taught like, definitely that every behavior comes from fear and i know that there are still quite a lot of people who believe right. that and still quite a lot of people who who, who argue that I, I disagree with that i don't i think that's that's way too way too reductionist it doesn't take into account the emotion of the animal when they're participating in behavior and i just i just don't buy that um the other thing that i think is i think the other thing that is really I think that too often any behavior that we see as socially inappropriate or negative, we put down to the dog being scared. And I think that often we don't respect the genetic um, and intrinsic. I I think often we don't respect the fact that behavior can can be intrinsically reinforcing itself. It isn't always a consequence that creates that. Um, And I think that fear, fear is a good example because being frightened isn't intrinsically reinforcing we don't enjoy being frightened no one enjoys being frightened and i think that very often 
let's take a, a, an example. Like, so for example, resource guarding. Nine times out of 10, when I hear other behaviorists who have gone to see a resource guarder have told the owners the reason that the dog is, is resource guarding is because they're frightened you're going to take it away from them. And actually, I would say that probably eight out of 10 cases that I see that I've worked with and, and sorted out with resource guarding, that is not the case at all. The dog is either intrinsically motivated by resource guarding, it's incredibly motivating. I watch my dogs do it to each other all the time, pick something up, take it, show it to each other, try and elicit a response, growl, put it on the floor, you can't have it. Like it's something dogs do all the time to each other. And a lot of dogs have a real deep need to perform that behavior and they're not given a decent enough outlet for it. And the other, the, a lot of the other times, it's just that the dog has been genetically predisposed to picking stuff up as in like your spaniels and all of that kind of stuff. And and if you're if you're half, if you're worth if you're worth any sort in the gun dog world, you know that for the first year of the dog's life you never take anything off them. You let them bring it right up to you and it looks like they want to give it to you, but they don't. They want you to go, oh that's so beautiful. Well done. I love it. Right. It's lovely. Right. right. But owners aren't often taught this and instead they take it off them and then it builds a conflict. And the dog's resource guarding because of the conflict of I need to pick things up and move around, but you keep taking it off me and I don't really understand why you're doing that. But neither of those things are fear. The dog isn't frightened of something being taken away. There isn't a fear there. It's not going to develop into a generalized anxiety. Right. That's not fear. So, so, so uh, and, and, and so often um, and more often than not, more often, so, so often I see defensive dogs. People think defensive is the same as frightened and it's not mm -hmm. they're two very different things like when you have your, your different agenda for sure different agenda yeah totally different like and and i think with a dog that's been built to be defensive like a rotty i think being defensive in and of itself is incredibly incredibly reinforcing they seek the opportunity. It's why most of the kennel club breed standards for your american bulldogs and those types of dogs it says where are your strangers that is because they seek the opportunity to look for suspicion so that they can perform these inbuilt behaviors to be defensive. There's so much confidence in that defensiveness. There's often a lot of cockiness and pushiness in that defensiveness. Yeah. It's not fear, but inexperienced dog trainers look at these dogs, they look at the output of behavior, they look, hold on, a new person's come and the dog's barking and lunging. They must be scared of the new person because when the new person goes away, that dog appears happy again. And what they don't realize is that the dog is seeking the opportunity to perform the behaviors that we've kind of gotten to know as fearful because that's what they've been bred to do. Yeah. And when you said, like, we go back a little bit when, you know, the thrill seeking too. And I give you an example of just, I think it was yesterday, I, I, I had to spend some time with my one of my young dogs, like a six month old Mali. We have, again, I mean, I'm in the central Florida. We have. We have everything from uh, uh, interesting wildlife. And, but one of the things it's we do have turtles and we mm -hmm. have snapping turtles. We have we have variety of, of things. So she she finds this little tiny baby turtle. Mm -hmm. And guess what? You you see now this interesting conflict in her brain between the curiosity and the fear and the exploration. Like yeah. you clearly know she she's cautious because she's afraid. She's like, well, is this thing gonna hurt me or is it not? Yeah. But then it's like, but I cannot help it. I need to investigate. Mm -hmm. And 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 
you know, it takes as long as it takes, and then we touch it, and it's like, oh my God, I touched it, and then it's like, oh, and oh, okay. And now that fear becomes very productive for the confidence of the, of the dog, and also allows the dog to experience the world and, and gather information, because if the turtle was something to be afraid of, if that was a porcupine or a skunk, a different lesson would have been learned. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, I was right to be afraid of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, I don't think even that. I don't think even that is really fear. I think it's apprehension, and I think apprehension is different because I think when mm. a dog is apprehensive, they don't know yet. I think they're going, this might be something I should be frightened of, and I think apprehension is is so similar chemically and in its certainly in its presentation to to anticipation. I think anticipation and, 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 and apprehension. So you like don't brothers. think that if you go further dive, start to peel that onion, apprehension, the roots of apprehension are not based in fear ultimately. I think they're based in the in anxiety because it's not fear yet because you don't know you don't know to be frightened of it. See, I think, so I think you are I, you're, I you're prepared biologically to be afraid. And try to sure, overcome, right? The apprehension is there, but I think the apprehension is there because we're prepared. Right. Like we're prepared to be frightened, and then we have to be proved one way or the other. Okay. And yeah, I think okay. That, that a lot well. of good trainers can recognise that, and like you say, you you see the dogs apprehensive, and instead of going in and treating it like the dogs frightened and going right, I need to counter condition this or whatever, and turning it into some big bloody mess like you often see you say oh the dog's apprehensive just let them be because the curiosity at that age they're gonna just allow them especially when they're kind of doing that kind of moving away and going back and moving away and going back and not sure they're yeah. not sure they're not sure but that um, thrill seeking basically that's kind of where i was going yeah. with this and and that's sure. where you know um because uh, there's a risk it's not definite but there's a risk yes isn't there? there is a little bit of las hard. vegas yeah yeah right it's, Exactly. But I think also ultimately, I think that brings about a really interesting point and, and, and something that drives me nuts is that is is um, is the body language thing is that we have this idea that stress is is this list of body languages. And, I, and it, it comes from that book ages ago and there's no science on it, really. Like the science on it is flimsy at best. But uh, and, and for some reason in in all aspects, it doesn't matter what camp you're in. At some point in your career, you're going to be taught that when a dog licks its lips, it yawns, it puts its ears back, the dog is stressed, right? And there's some very good biological reasons that the dog would do that when they're stressed. And I'm not doubting that they do do those things when they're stressed. But what you're not told is they also do that when they're anticipating and when they're apprehensive. And all these other very tolerable, very important things that you will see in a dog. And certainly the more the younger trainers that I see in that come in as students of ours is they are they, they see they see a dog and its ears pinned back and it's licking its lips and it's yawning and they go, right, we've got to stop this. We need to remove the dog out of this situation because it's really stressed. And you're like, no, 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 no. You don't know that yet. You don't you haven't seen the dog do anything yet. We like we don't know. And and more importantly, we haven't seen the dog recover. Because some dogs give off this massive great big host of pantomime. Some dogs I've seen dogs in kennels where I work, like in the kennels that I work in here in Spain, sometimes you, you get put in a, a, a shitty situation where flooding is your only option because 
because life itself is going to really flood the dog and and the dog's in a kennel and it's it's life or death and you go in and you think even me just touching you even me picking you up is is going to completely flood you because you don't want to be touched but either you're going to be able to tolerate this and recover from it and we're on a path to some sort of a life or you're not and it's a path to euthanasia like it's one or the other and so you go in and some of these dogs will scream right when you touch them they'll and their ears everything and whenever i've had kind of more force free trainers with me or, or, or any any trainer actually is that i shouldn't put them in a camp like that because it's any trainer some trainers the less experienced ones will shit their pants and immediate going, assumption yeah this is horrendous this is intolerable and 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 it's fascinating how quickly the dogs can recover from it and the dogs can shake it off very quickly and you go in and you do it again and they're and then by about the fifth or sixth time you go in there they're starting to anticipate you coming in and starting to come over and, and give you a cuddle and it's okay and it's always a beautiful lesson in that, you know, that that we're taught that these things are stress signals. They are stress signals, but they're also signals for so many other things. And stress signal doesn't necessarily mean that something isn't tolerable. Correct. It, and if it is tolerable and the dog can recover from it, the dog will be more resilient. It will be. There are very few things that that, that is completely unrecoverable. And in a, in a gradient, the more the dog recovers And from, it takes a huge effort to, to, to reach this kind of state, actually, to, to yeah. make the dog get there. Yeah, mm-hmm. this, is, this is very, very interesting stuff. Um, and, um, um, oh gosh, I was going to say something. Um, I think we move so fast away from stress response. Like, the dog gives a stress response. The same with like, the cortisol. Like, you know, it's yeah. it's a it's a fake measure. It's a fake it's a measure <laughs> because cortisol is supposed to like all, all of your chemicals. They're supposed to go up and down, like you you sleeping yeah. and you wake up, and uh-huh. there is immediate change. And you move, you move. If I go for a run, my cortisol levels will be through the roof. If I if I if I um. You know, if I go boxing, I do boxing as a, as a hobby. That's what I like doing mm. when I'm not doing mondeoring. And um, and when I box, I must come back and my cortisol levels are through the roof. And you know what? It increases my motivation. It increases my ability. To, it increases how vigilant I am, yeah. how quick I am to react to things. But it, it's a life force. It's it's not a negative thing. You know, it, it's right. always considered. Oh, and people, again, with the whole bowing down to science thing, they hear the words, the cortisol level in this dog increased. And they go, oh. That means that much, that variable must be the worst variable. Yeah, the that same. Must, they're like really, bad. this is like we we're going, we're we're flowing here into a different topic with with psychotropic medications and how how society was for for so long led to believe that if we control serotonin, if we make serotonin low, and and mm-hmm. it's just. No, big pharma is making a lot of money and have a very nice way to convince you to put you on medication. And yeah. and at best, it's proven like which now, now that they've done so many studies on, on uh, you know, placebo, like giving them sugar and giving them psych- psychotropics and, and there is no reason to believe, no reason whatsoever to believe that the psychotropic medication does anything different. It was very interesting how you would put you know, uh, like if I don't feel good, let's say I broke up with my girlfriend, I got fired, wh- whatever happened in life today. Here you go, some Prozac. Let's get the <laughs> pill. And two or three weeks later, 
I'm getting better? Am I getting mm-hmm. better because of the pill or am I getting better because I have to oh. get better and move on? Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing that fascinates me about that medication is that, 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 that there's been a real, um, the, the, so many of the vets and behaviorists that I work with, it's like a one pill fits all. Like fluoxetine, just give them fluoxetine yes. for everything. And it, it, it's mental when you think about it. Like it's so crazy because it's only, it, like, it, it's only, it's only looking at serotonin. And, and there are, you know, there's so many other chemicals. Like, it's like and, people and go, oh. Nobody really knows exactly what happens, but we know for a fact that they do have a certain numbing effect to where you uh-huh. kind of don't so, give a fuck. It doesn't matter so, if yeah. there is the atom bomb or there is a big mm-hmm. birthday party. You're just kind of like, yeah, because whatever. It's, because it's telling, it's telling your body you're okay. Right. Like, and when you're suffering with like true anxiety, absolutely fantastic you need to be told you're okay but when you're struggling with a lack of motivation and you're given something that tells you okay you just go i'm never gonna fucking leave the right. leave the bed why am i gonna bother getting up there's just no point because i'm fine everything's fine everything's brilliant i don't need to do anything and and, and it always it always fascinates me it's the same as when it's the same as when they medicate dogs for for being who they are and you've got yeah. a dog you've got a got a Malinois that's being a Malinois and they say, right, I think we need to give it something to to calm it down because it's obviously anxious because it's a Malinois. Right. And you're like, no, no, the, the dog's like the dog's just being who the dog is. Like you can't you can't medicate the dog away from I mean you can, but it's wholly unethical to yeah. medicate the dog to to reduce its uh, and and I think it behavior comes, modification think, approaches it's uh, I mean, it is far more proven to 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 be more successful. Um, I think medication can be good to give a window. Sometimes there's definitely been cases that I've worked with. I think understanding the drugs, like there is there's certain drugs for like timidity, for example, like busprone for timidity. I've worked with some ex puppy farm dogs where it's been absolutely game changing. Where you've got a dog that won't come under the so won't come out from under the sofa. It right. will now come out from under the sofa, and it gives you a window to train. And then, be, but they have to be given with a plan. You know, we shouldn't be giving these dogs drugs for years. It's not a lifetime. It's not a lifetime thing here that the whole point of them working is to give us the ability to work the dog or, or that's what it should be. Same as, you know, same as the drugs for fireworks. Um, you know, th- th- there's drugs that that look at that are selective, selectively uh, block the reuptake of dopamine as well as serotonin. So increase the dopamine in the system as well as the serotonin. And they went out of fashion and kind of got replaced with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors just because of the side effects. But it, that always surprised me because I was like, no, these are two different types of drugs. Correct. Like they're two completely different types. Like if I've got a dog that I want to increase the dopamine of, and uh, in fact, they they look at acetylcholine as well. So if I've got a dog where I want the acetylcholine, the, the, the dopamine and the serotonin of the dog to increase, I'm looking at increasing the, the focus and attention of that dog. I'm looking at being able to provide the dog with more intrinsic motivation to continue performing behavior, as well as looking at like the reward system and the self-esteem of the dog. And that's a whole different picture. It doesn't matter if there's more side effects because it's a different thing to if I'm looking at a dog and I'm just going to be giving it serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It's but quite so many of the behaviorists don't really understand this. Yeah, well, that's what they learn in school. Uh, uh, they yeah. they they really like uh, uh, the the 
it's, it's the education is it's at fault, but who is sponsoring their education is the the companies that make the drugs and how many like when you think about how many uh, uh, studies are done, what how the brain reacts when you start to be on the drugs, and how mm-hmm. many studies are done trying to take away the drug. It's like one to 1,000 probably ratio because they have zero interest to to even think about getting you off the drug. Mm -hmm. Um, They would say, yeah, it's very easy to do and you just need to be very progressive, but it's not like it's not anybody that's been on any uh, sort of psychotropic medication can attest that it's just not easy to get off of it if you stayed long enough on it. Um, what I believe uh, from from all of my practice, the psychotropics again they do have place, as yeah. we already said, they are. But they are not for every dog. Like when you, when a uh, 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 you average pet owner has a problem and they think, okay, I have a problem with my dog. I need to look at the highest possible option because I can afford it and I want to do the best to my dog. So I'm not going to go to the dog trainer that that's advertising, but I will go to the animal behavior specialist because it just sounds very legit and much more knowledge. And when they pay $400 for 40 minutes questionnaire and they walk out with a prescription on, on, Prozac, mm-hmm. without without exploring any other options, yeah. it's so harmful. And, and what I found fascinating is that people are so quick to say, um, you know, we need to be <laughs> certainly at least what I was saying earlier about you know we there's there's a there's a kind of a, an order that should be done in training and that we don't move to aversive tools straight away and that we need to try this and then we try this and then we move up the threshold and we see whether or not a low level interrupt blah, blah, blah. surely that exactly the same thing should be done with medication correct because it's the same level of it's the same level of um aversive in a way you know it's the same level of of, of intensity of a, a medication if not more. And, and so surely there should be, there should at least be a pathway plan where, where, where I just saw the fox come in the garden. I thought I oh, bet really? the dogs are going to run out. <laughs> um, pray, predators, having a game. Anyway. Speaking so of which, I, I will remember you thought, because I did have, for two years, I had foxes having babies under my house. Right here, I'm sitting outside on my deck and they will be <laughs> under the deck. And all of my dogs know that we have foxes and there was only one dog that would want to go and kill them. Only one dog without any, any yeah. you know, but anyway. I don't, uh, think, I don't think, I don't think these guys want to kill them. I think they, they, they want to chase them. They'll they be interested. To ch- yeah, exactly. And then it's like, okay, I got you. Now what do we do? Can you run again? <laughs> yeah. I think this one, my young one would probably just want to play with them. They, um, but they're, they're curious and they go right. out and they run away. And so it's become like a little, this time of evening, it's become like a little. What game. I believe. The bulldog just wants to bark and get everybody else running outside. I don't think she even knows there's foxes. Animal behavior specialists and, and a lot of trainers are not exploring enough a different option of, mm-hmm. you know, instead of trying to 
to numb the dog to where he's more acceptable to try to change the physiology. Because mm -hmm. once the physiology is changed, like once you go, as you said, you go do Thai boxing or you just go on a treadmill, mm -hmm. endorphins, like all the, all the good chemicals, they get activated and the brain all of a sudden is like, um, um, you know, I feel good. Yeah, so instead sure. of getting numb, uh, the more approach, the interesting approach is, mm -hmm. how do we create, you feel good, and then pair that feeling good association with whatever else possibly. Mm -hmm. And and that, I'm sure there's some sort of equation that would end up looking like some sort of a checklist. Right. Whereby you go through and you'd, you'd put into your equation, you know, what what behaviours is the dog got a selective drive for? What behaviours does the dog choose to participate in? What does the dog choose not to participate in? All that kind of stuff. And you'd end up with some sort of a checklist whereby you say, okay, you need to be doing this level of exercise with the dog. You need to, you should be trying, you know, these, these games with the dog, it should be doing X, Y, and Z. Once you've done that for X amount of time, if the behavior continues, then we move on to this, which is like a more positive approach with, you know, training other behaviors using differential reinforcement, blah, 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 blah. But now start imagining a different state. emotional state to, to the perception of, of right open the window so that when they see the trigger yes. they're already in a different place yes it, it's uh, sure. i i like uh, again something i i spend quite a bit of time uh, at when i teach and that's cool is um and i i play this really cool video clips of imagine somebody that is just walking with their shoulders low the head down breathing very shallow just going like, man, life sucks. And yeah. you will find reason why life sucks. Yeah, and we can put you on the medication mm -hmm. or we know for certain that we can change the physiology and the brain by becoming, by, by literally just doing some sport activity mm -hmm. and, and not allow, because the two things cannot happen at the same time. You cannot be feeling good and depressed at the same time. Mm -hmm. And sure. instead of trying to work on the brain, if you change the physiology of the body, it immediately dictates how the brain's gonna feel at the moment. What we teach us, so what I teach my behavior students um, is that basically there's, there's, like, there's seven lenses to look through when you're looking at any behavior. Right, you've basically got to say, I mean, essentially, you can look at them evolutionarily, you can look at the behavior evolutionarily, you can look at it genetically, you can look at it, the physiology of the dog, you can look at it neurobiologically, you can look at it endocrinologically, you can look at it socially, and, um, and you can look at it emotionally, right? And you've got those seven lenses and all of them, any behavior, you can choose any of those lenses and there'll be an answer. There'll be a reason why it's happening. There'll be a motivation and there'll be an outcome. There'll be a, for example, if we're going to look at it endocrinologically, then medication is normally the answer because you're going to change the, and you want to change the chemicals of the dog. But the, the skill of being a good behaviorist is being able to say, well, when I look at my little, my pillars of ethics, don't leave a color no. Okay. Um, when I look at the, the, the pillars of ethics when I look at clarity, time, like efficacy, relationship, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then 
then and when I look at what's going to be the best outcome, the quickest way, the easiest way for the dog, the the the, the thing about being a decent behaviorist is being able to say which one of these is the going to be the the most effective in a timely fashion and the most ethical yeah right yeah and, and and it's 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 easy to get caught up on one lens it's easy and and I always say this to my students especially when you start learning about neurobiology when you do your neurobiology modules and you do your endocrinological ones because it makes you feel so smart like you feel so clever knowing all the words and know the chemicals and knowing the different parts of the brain and being able to say, well, the prefrontal cortex is and all this stuff. Like it makes you feel clever. And because we because we pray so hard to science, it makes you feel like, well, I am I, I am now up there because I can I understand the science of of neurobiology. And that's especially clever. Yes. Right? And combine that with your me. basic knowledge of the quadrants. Yeah. <laughs> and you have a really good recipe. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. But it's no more it's no more important than understanding the evolution of the dog um, and the breed or the genetics of the dog and the breed or the or the or the um, cognition and emotion of the animal. And it's no more smart either. And like our job is to be able to say, well, which lens is the best lens to look through? And then when I look through that lens, I can see your depressed. Per like if we look at physiology, um, I can look at that depressed person and I can say, well, you know, let's get him running. Let's get him moving. Let's get him doing exercise. When I, when I look at the emotions, I say, well, you know, he's he's unhappy. What's going to make him happy? What does the evidence, what does our experience tell us are good methods to improve how he feels? Yes. You know, or socially, let's look at him through a social lens. Let, let, we know that having friends and having a support network is really important. Is it going to be easier to get him running for this particular individual? Or is it going to be easier getting to play pool once a week with his friends? And, and for this individual, it might be easier to get him to play pool with his friends. He might be quite lazy, overweight. He doesn't want to run. Fine. This is just another lens to look through that looks at the behavior in a different way. But the, the, I think one of the biggest problems is that especially like the more medically trained professionals tend to, to, to just end up looking through that one lens every time and, and, and not. Negotiate do you think it's an income issue? Like, do you think it's I mean, I know I know they, they get they, they do get it in their education. For sure, it's it's misleading what they're learning. But. I, I also believe that there is some some uh, um, you know benefit of of well this is this is how I can help I cannot tell you how to do yeah. monitoring with your see, dog. I think they see see wins the same way that all of us do, and I think that they you know I think the same way. So what because because I'm one of the people that works with like trainers from all different backgrounds. I don't care what what tools you use and shit like that. I think that I I get to hear. The balance trainers going, this client came from 24 free trainers that were unable to help my dog and I was able to fix it in one session. Yes. Equally, I hear the, the positive trainers yes. say, this dog is come and it's abused and it's flat and it hates the world. And the owners have said that that these these trainers have used these tools on it and, and the dog is now in absolute state and I've managed to fix the dog. Right. And I reckon, you know, a lot of the from the medical community, they probably go, these guy, this this client went to 40 different trainers for seven different hours and they weren't able to fix the dogs. I've given the dog drugs within a week. I've seen improvement. And part of that is the feedback that we get from our clients because 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 we do. And part of that is because the different lenses fix different dogs. And ultimately, if you've tried all these different lenses and it's not worked and you come to this one, then the chances are it is more likely to work. But in the same breath that I think that there's a bias there, 
there's a bias in the in the balance community to think that tools are the uh, are the absolute you know the amount of e-collar trainers that i work with yeah. you go straight to the e-collar that is the tool of the day especially like the, the chameleon collar is is the 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 best in think why would you ever use anything else to ever train your dog anything like yeah, ever yeah, yeah. and like the napopo um, this is an argument you- for sure a, an <laughs> argument the balance trainer especially electric collar trainers would rush into well we're not u- mm-hmm. we're not using this unpredictable Chinese colors. We're using a high level reliable color. That's yeah. great, but that doesn't give you a green light for let's go then do everything we can with it and yeah, just absolutely. be happy clicker, you know. Exactly. So I, I I think that that everybody's got bias, and I think everybody's kind of it, there's a there's a story of confirmation bias from all of them. How do you and, feel and, about how do you feel about uh, um, licensing trainers. Yeah, I, th- I actually think it'd be a good thing. I know that a lot of people have got a lot of opinions, but most of the opinions that I hear against it are as a, a fear from animal rights. And I think that you, you kind of have to deal with that as a separate issue. Um, and if we deal with that as a separate issue and we just look at like, the regulation of dog trainers, I think that I think that registration would be would be the first step that's really important. I don't see why we can't all register under one app like TripAdvisor or Uber. Sure. And everybody gets a registration number, in which case any client can see how long you've been training for, because it's how long you've been on the app for. Every time you do CPD, you stick it on there so that every time you go to a course or you do so that you can see this trainer has been training for 10 years, but they've literally done nothing. Right. All they've done is trained their own dogs. This trainer has been training 10 years, but they've only gone to university and they've never competed in any sport or won anything. This trainer has gone to university, won this sport, and they're constantly doing courses from different people. And, uh, uh, you know, or, or whatever, you'd be able to see all of that. And I think that that would, that would definitely help it. And then I think as time went on, firstly, that that'd give us data and a complaints commission, which I think is really important because at the moment there's not a country in the world that can tell you how many how many dog trainers there are charging for services, let alone how many of them are balanced and how many of the positive ones get complaints, what the euthanasia stats, nothing. Secondly, it'd give us really good data on dog bites because we know they're underreported and we don't have any real understanding as to the motivation of dog bites, et cetera, et cetera. One of the primary reasons we have animal behaviorists is to reduce dog bites and therefore if if there was some sort of standard reporting in there that every time you your client's dog bit someone it was reported in a standardized way by the behaviorist who then said this is what i believe the motivations to be etc etc then we'd get some fantastic data on why dogs are biting when they're biting who they're biting and then as time how do we avoid the bias in this but but what what bias as in like this person you so like let's say on- well, no like um i mean let's take i i i may be going way out of this now but unless unless we start to come together the the force free community will push in in one side and the other trainers will push on the other side um and and licensing can become difficult for those labels to be in there so you wouldn't put in that you wouldn't put in there if you're a force free trainer or not you would simply put the methods that you use and you'd say you know you'd have a table and it says what do you do when the client's dog gets it wrong and you list your consequences what do you do when the client gets it right and we negate all those labels 
Yeah. Because they well, don't make yeah. any sense anyway. You know, yeah. they don't do it. But I, th- I think in time, if we were to build an app that did that, I think in time, you'd also be able to have client reviews on there. And you'd do that the same way as you do on Uber, in that only after the client has paid, do they get sent the ability to review, so that you know you're not going to get too many falsies on there. And then and then I think, so then you'd, you'd end up with some ability to look at like look in your area and say this trainer's a five star trainer, this trainer's a three star trainer, this this trainer's seen seven thousand dogs, this trainer's seen three hundred dogs, and, and and you'd get a little bit of an idea. It'd be a bit more of a meritocracy in there, and then eventually, I think you'd start to standardise and say, well, actually, you can only join this app once you've had I don't know three years uh, no like three months experience shadowing a different dog trainer that's already on this app and they have to sign you off or something like that so that you end up with a scheme whereby you are setting a lowest possible benchmark where no, where people can't just say oh, i'm going to be a dog trainer tomorrow and and whereby you are then saying well you know this person is considered a gold dog trainer because they've been training for this long and have done this much cpd and have done this this and this right. this person's you know or so on and so forth so that we can start to regulate a little bit because i, I i'd like to see a bit more regulation in no in, i do in, too in... i think i i i really think regulation can be very good i just don't see how it can how it can take the the our human nature of my way is better than any other way. Um, like, like, you know, in a lot of the European countries, like mm-hmm. in, in Germany, for example, today, if you want mm-hmm. to certify and get a license, guess who is uh, um, testing your skills? It's a veterinar- veterinary yeah. animal behaviorist. Sure. And you uh, have to check certain boxes that says inflicting pain is automatically not okay fear-based is automatically not okay using any of any aversive approach is not okay and if you check those as they might be okay in certain situation you're simply not getting becoming a licensed professional dog trainer and I, I think that's why that's one of the reasons that i would move away from an education-based uh, or, or um, an exam-based, any sort of system that's exam-based or registered. Right. I think it's more. I think it's registration that we need more than we need and data. But I will uh, tell I, you I, a really good example of this one. And so, Florida, I think it was maybe five years ago. There was a push to ban the electric collars. It was pretty strong push, and so trainers on both sides ended up going to the city hall and and. You know, there were hearings and, you know, we went through a process and and ultimately the decision was made. There was an interesting argument. It's like, okay, well, let's let's leave the what ifs. Let's leave the worst case scenarios. Let's let's look at data and see where data leads us. And what we decided as a community in Florida was every trainer that it's professionally trained, they get registered, of course, mm-hmm. with the counties. They have a training plan and they openly discuss any development in the training with the client 
and let's mm-hmm. say let's say they take a positive approach but they hit a wall and there is a room maybe to try something else this is mm-hmm. negotiated this is openly discussed and agreed upon and it's done and all this data with every single dog every single trainer that trains dogs in the state of florida presents monthly or bi-monthly all the all of their training plans and end results to animal care and control yeah nice guess yeah it was very interesting but guess what happened what who who will spend the time to read all these hundreds of training plans and who is the one to this like it just never never that was it it was just something of of, oh this is a very good idea and let's do this yeah but you need a university to do it so they can they can then explore that data because data is really difficult to to deal with isn't it yeah i think or you need an automated system or you need like with the internet there's no reason why you couldn't have done all that on an automated system if that was done online on an automated system, then you wouldn't need to re- you wouldn't need to calculate the data because it'd come up with its own it'd come up with its own pie charts and percentages and all that stuff because you could you could you could create it in such a way and I think that would have been that would have been more you know a more effective approach. But the openness of the scientific community is not there to no. to look at not it yet. to look at it objectively. Not yet. Um, so, I, I, I agree. I agree, and I think one of the biggest problems with the scientific community is the fact that they they haven't got, you know, it, science begins on the field. Like the reason that we have science is because you're out there and you have a question. You go, "Why does my dog do that?" Yeah, like that because because the only point of it, like usefulness of science, is its application. Without its application, what's the point of science? Yeah, I give so my I think- my hats off. Go to uh, Clive Wynn. Um, you yeah. know, with with the Arizona Canine uh, mm-hmm. Science Lab, and and you know, I I did a podcast with him maybe a year ago, and and I convinced him. I'm like, you know, one of the things with with what you guys do is you you're not in you meaning in in broader term, uh, you're not interested in somebody using something very ef- extremely effectively and you're not exploring that as a push option to 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 make some study there instead we are always looking how on on the disadvantages and on the negativity side and i convince him to to do this study that we're doing right now with me just because of that and and he was like the only person that was i'm like I don't even know how our conversation went, but he was very down to earth. He's like, hey, I'm, I am very genuinely interested in how things can be better. Yeah, and, and he's, he's not like, a, like too much, it's going to sound awful, he's not too much of a practicing dog trainer to have too much of a kind of bias, really, in some ways, because he's not got enough, like tra- training dogs, out on the street is not providing him a living. I, I, I think. But I think at the same of- time, he has he has been, and and I I think they have a, a behavioral program that uh, a lot of people go and take classes and everything. Mm-hmm. And and as far as the curriculum and as far as how they and he how he would look at training, um, hopefully this study I, I know this study changes 
the outlook, yeah. at least for him. Yeah. Um, but where, where I'm going with this is we, we need to explore Agreed. when something can be done very intelligently and in a very, uh, uh, there, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing instead of focusing need, always on the bad we, thing. A hundred percent. And we, we need more, we need, we need, we don't just need, we need more data, which obviously you're, you're helping with, but we also need uh, a, a broader way of looking at that data in terms of looking at what, what, when we talk about ethical training, what we're talking about, like, I know fairly firmly I've got my four things that I look at, like I said earlier, like relationship, clarity, time, and efficacy. But, you know, as a, as a dog, dog training community, really we need to agree on those things like as a, as a whole and say, what, what is what is efficacy? And obviously, like, what is what is ethical dog training? And and rather than rather than argue about it without having any definition of what we're claiming is efficacy mm -hmm. like what, what what is what is successful training what is um right. what is clarity in training what does that look like like that's what we need to be teaching people but in addition to that do you think because when you asked about regulation it did make me think like do you think so i i think that two things really i think if someone's going to go and do an academic course on animal behavior i think that there should be a qualification that they need at least one year working with dogs and getting experience before they learn the academic side of it right because i think that learning the academic side of it without the context of the experience is what yes. leads to these armchair behaviorists but equally i think that people who are going to use to learn the tools because the problem i would say with the tools is the overuse of them and um the over reliance on them as well and i think that is that is the major problem that i see more more than more than the abuse that people claim is happening it's just the overuse and and first point of call do you think that then there should also be some sort of a a, re a regulation that that they have to that a trainer should have undertaken a certain number of years or a certain certain amount of experience training without the tools before they are allowed to learn to use the tools mm -hmm. yeah we i think you and i have talked about this even on and off the mic um yeah and then it has made me made me think deep into this um i always have this opinions right away but then i go back and i think and i wish all of us do that because uh try we we have to stay we have to stay open to if we cannot scratch out something just because of our original thought and and our narrative and our ideology whatever that is and my so my current take on this one is that i don't think it i i agree it they have to learn i don't think they have to learn it as the end result that's kind of like how you how i disagree with where the apdt lima ladder is yeah. right now yeah. i think that we can absolutely very safely and actually much more uh, uh it will make much more sense to somebody that wants to learn to where they are learning both options simultaneously because they they still like when when we think of you know you 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 understand this one and it's naturally to get exposed to the other one 
and I but my I think that comes at the end. Like in in my perfect world, in my little fantasy, my little pony land where I'm the ruler of everything. Uh, uh, what I would like to see is I'd like to see like uh, positive reinforcement based trainers, trainers that don't use tools. The the ones the ones like us, the ones that are that are education providers and who are providing education for trainers coming together and creating certification courses for trainers with balanced trainers. Yes. And therefore they go through and they do the certification for the um, without the tools and they learn the mechanics and all the methods that, that we use as someone who doesn't have those options. Then they use, they learn the next stuff. And then the kind of examination process or whatever you like, or the, the kind of final step is to is to be able to prove that they can adequately assess and go, this is the one that I, I want to use. Now, there is no right way because every dog is different and every trainer is different, but they need to be able to, you know, analyze that in an, in an intelligent way where they can where they can look at the different um components of ethics and go i'm going to use this one because of this and not just go in trigger happy yeah it's beautiful to to be able to have this choice to make based on knowledge and then based on knowledge you say no i just like how you've decided that you want to stay on this side of things and but but you 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 have the knowledge even if you think you don't have the knowledge um i think it's important if any dog trainer is gonna be a dog trainer, um, to if if you decide to take this only one side of approach, and you get very creative and very good at this one side approach, still to assume that if any of those approaches may fail, which is probable, that there is other options, and when you're not exposed to those other options at school like there is but it's really hard like i can tell you from experience Mm. because i've i've gone around the world learning about using those tools without using those tools like i spent some time up at michael's place and like i've been all over the place looking to learn about it but when you want to a when you want to learn about it but you don't want to use them that you you do come against real um attitude and 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 you know and, and a lot of people that are very keen like new vegans to tell you why you should be a vegan and that can be difficult and i also don't think there are enough safe spaces i get asked all the time there are not enough safe spaces for trainers that don't use tools to learn about tools right 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 that's kind of exactly what i was exactly exactly my point it's actually like uh like let's say if somebody goes to one of the force free doc school for dog trainers uh, in, 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 in the country here, or, or you simply become a member of APDT or one of these organizations, mm-hmm. you are signing off and you're agreeing that this is the only thing that's good. Otherwise, your certification gets taken away. And it's such a... Um, extreme and it's it's so incorrect because even if it it pushes people that use aversives like if somebody that is so-called balance trainer and wants to join apdt right now Mm -hmm. or wants to go through a let's say uh karen priors academy or jane donaldson academy you you really cannot 
have both. You have to be one or the other. And if you don't choose their approach, you're mm -hmm. automatically taken out. It's, it's the same in both, though, isn't it? It's about an, an equal. I don't think hard. it's the same in both. I think, uh, I, I think balanced trainers are more open to learn and listen. But I think they, they also are given more opportunity to. Now, I do think that mm -hmm. there is the convert thing where as soon as a balance, like we, I work really hard on our courses to, to prevent people from doing it. But I know that if we have if we have three or four balanced guys in on a course and 20 or so um, positive guys on the course, what do you want? Um, then generally it's like, speaking, come on, mom, let's do something. You've been talking too long. <laughs> um, then. Generally speaking, the the positive guys will try to convert the balanced guy. And I don't think that's right. I try and prevent that because I think that's that's unreasonable and they're there to learn the same as anybody else. Um, but equally, whenever I've gone on courses that are the same thing has happened whenever I've gone on courses that are for that are not designed for positive trainers. And actually I'd say that I'm normally met with quite a lot of disdain. That it's you guys that are against us. You guys are trying to ban our tools. And I'm like, I'm trying to learn about them. But I'm just trying to learn about them. Right. Uh, so I, I do think it's both sides. I do think that if we're going to get the industry to come together, which is basically our aim, isn't it? Like, I think all of us, all of us who are who are training at a certain level would would like to see you know, a bridging of the gap and, and and no longer worrying about all this bullshit, you're this type of trainer, you're this type of trainer. Uh, all of us want to see better trainers, just people who are training more elegantly and making more careful decisions and who are not trigger happy, but equally are not ineffective because they're so far away from the threshold and all that kind of stuff. But I think if that's going to happen, that has to start with the education providers. Right. I think that has, that has to start with the education providers getting together and saying, well, we're going to provide education that is both. And you certify with us. You don't have to use the tools if when we get to this level, we're going to teach you about them. And if you want to do the practical sides of that, you can. If you don't want to, you can watch. Like, or, 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 you know, you don't have to do that, but we're going to educate you in them. The and, bare and minimum is to get exposed and, and have basic exactly. grasp of what it is about besides the fact that this is a bad idea, right? Yeah. And, and equally, we're going to, you're, you're going to have to get through. If you're, if you're one of those guys, which I'm sure we've all met, who are just desperate to get their hands on the remote, you're going to have to get through X amount of weeks learning to bloody use a toy, learning to work with the dog aggression case without using that, just using your voice, just using, you're going to have to get through all of that before you you get your license to lift that right, remote because right. actually what you're going to end up doing is becoming good enough at the other stuff that you will at least use it less. So but I think that starts with education providers. This is very, I mean, we are on to something. It, we, we just have a small disagreement of where the use of aversive should come in the curriculum. But ultimately yeah, I, I think but, we agree. But I think that the, the bit at the end is when it all comes together. Cause the bit at the end is saying you, you, it might be less aversive to, to put a collar, to put a prong collar on a dog straight away and use it like this. And I think the bit at the end is where you probably do a week or so at a rescue kennels working with hardcore cases and with both trainers there saying, look, I'm going to show you my approach of it. I'm going to show you my approach yeah. of it. What what are you guys going to do? Okay, there's your case study dogs. You guys go and choose your approach and, and choose whether or not you're going to use this approach or this approach and see how long that takes you and so on and so forth, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I... I I think um I think this can 
this is the right, definitely the right path. A lot of things mm -hmm. need to get ironed, um, but yeah. but it is the right path. Like I still, my my belief would be, and I I if if there is no other option, I would agree with your approach to to first learn uh, of positive reinforcement, differential reinforcement, and and then add on. Um, I, I still ultimately think that they go hand in hand. And yes. when we are using aversives, like we can have examples that are very extremely benign to, to understand how aversives work. We don't need, uh, just like, you know, you, you can do click and treat and then you can step on from there to whatever else. Um, and when we think of, um, you know, teaching some pet tricks and shaping and, you know, all, all valuable stuff, the use of aversives can be presented right away and go like build those blocks together because you make the same, uh, uh, you know, but you're safe in, you're not, you're not putting the dog at risk. Like there is a lot of theoretical part. There is a lot of things that we don't need dogs to do. Like we can play, you know, you can be my dog, I can be your dog. I mean, there's like so many cool options. Um, but this, that, that's a definitely something that needs to be talked about. And I agree with that anyway, because I do think that having both trainers there, it would almost be a case of translation some of the time. Like, for example, you know, I use my, my what I call my mistake marker, where I say, ah, ah, no, but what's that if it's not an aversive? And and if if the trait, you know, if the if the tutors, one of them was positive and one of them was balanced, the balance trainer would say, now as a balance trainer, I'm going to call this what it is, which is a conditioned punisher. And there's no two ways about it. And I think that it would begin to mix that rhetoric, you know. And 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 you know, actually, what she's using, she's right. She is using this, that, and the other. But it's also spatial pressure, and that's going to be aversive to the dog, which is why the dog's moving backwards when she's putting the lure underneath it. She is luring the dog, but she's also using the pressure of her body to move the dog backwards when she's teaching that pop stand or whatever it is you're right. teaching. And I think some of it by having both of them there would be able you'd be able to translate each other into terms and you'd find that actually like like where we came to earlier the line in the sand can be so fine that it's just semantics and neither one is forcing you to take that path it's just it's yeah. just understanding it it's you know like if if like with any any other profession you know you you kind of get an overall education then specializing in something because that something is more fitting with your with who, who you, you are. are right and and there is nothing wrong with that now it only becomes wrong if the other way is clearly far more productive or, or, or but not even if it's far more productive though not when it comes to sentient beings because if it, if it weren't for dogs being alive creatures and if they were just robots then it would only be about productivity and, and, and efficacy but it isn't because there's the feelings and the emotions and the cognitions and as, as long as the as long as the students understand that well when i mean productive i i i kind of put it all in a lump um um you know <laughs> I mean, if, if one way was able to encompass everything and be effective in every case in a way that was completely ethical, then then yeah. But I think if that were the case, then it be then the whole this this whole conversation would be a moot point. You know, it'd be it, it, we know that. I mean, like there's there's silly little things as well. Like I think earlier you asked me whether or not people 
whether or not the trainers that I trained with had changed their ways since I trained. There, there are so many methods that aren't taught if you only learn one way. And I always find that sort of thing frustrating because I think to myself, oh, if you'd learned both ways, you never would have had this problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's so many, there's so many things that could be like, it'd be lovely to have like, to, for, for for there to be enough, you know, decency that you end up with courses that are hot, that are 50% positive trends, 50% balanced, that the tutors are both, or, you know, there's a bunch of tutors and some of them come from some, some and, and in every class, you make sure there's one of each and they give you the alternatives. Right. I want to know, I want to know how it's taught with an e-collar. I want to know how it's taught with a prong collar. I want to know how it's, and I want to see it in that particular dog and, and, but I also want to know how it's taught with food, how it's taught with toys, how it's taught with just tactile stimulation, how we're going to, what's, what, what is the lowest, what's the lowest aversive we can use with this dog? Let's have a look and see what's, what, and what boundaries and what measurements are we going to use to quantify that? What's important to us? All that kind of stuff are things that students should be thinking about. And I just don't think there's enough opportunity and all the time that we keep the education systems completely separate, there's going to be a polarised polarized view on each side i i mean we can just end it right here <laughs> yeah, i but i have one like uh, uh i have just something that it's been in my head that i we haven't talked and i'm curious to hear your take spain neuter how do you feel Yet again, the studies are completely inept from giving us any decent evidence because the assessments of the dogs are wrong because they haven't assessed the dogs for, for whether or not they're confident or whether or not they're not confident by by like whether or not so the vast majority of the studies give mixed results on whether or not the dog's behavior changes in a positive fashion or in a negative fashion and to me this is literally a problem in them assessing the motivation of the aggression in the first place and if they are able i think they would you would find that if the the aggression and the behavior problems are based on fear that neutering makes it worse and if the dogs are pushy and and dominant or whatever words we want to use i know that's a trigger word for a lot of people but i don't have any problem using it um if the dogs are assertive and pushy and confident, then yes, neutering them often reduces the behaviours associated with pushy and dominant and assertive. It often reduces the competition, especially the sexually, you know, sexually motivated competition from other males and things like that. So the aggression often goes down. But unfortunately, there is not one study that has differentiated between the motivations of the aggression in the first place. So, so instead we see completely mixed results and you end up the vet saying neuter everything I see at work and you end up the behaviourist saying neuter nothing because it's going to make the behaviour worse. And I think actually it, it depends and you've, you've kind of almost got a flow chart of little decisions that you have to think about, about the health of the dog and like whether or not the dog's going to be prone to arthritis. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Outweighing the pros and cons as well because it might yeah. not be cost effective to, to accomplish one thing and... and damage five uh, you know exactly exactly so there's almost like a little flow chart of behaviors and is the dog in its adolescence i think sadly so much sexualized behavior is caught up in adolescence and people assume it's just testosterone when actually you know the dog's got significantly more gray matter in its brain that makes it less risk averse so it's more likely to take a risk it's also changes the reward center of the chemicals in the brain which means it's more likely to be rewarded when a risk does pay off or when they do perform certain intrinsically motivated behaviors um and all of that stuff is going to change with time irrespective right. 
of neutering. So I think there should probably, unless there's unless there's health reasons, it would be nice if there was some sort of a time limit where they said well, you, you can't neuter a dog until it's past its adolescence um, because we don't know how the behaviour is going to actually change and, and the likelihood is that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be better for the males, certainly. For the females, things like in-house, I think the in-house dynamic needs to be studied and thought about a lot more before the neutering um because if you have i have four bitches and a dog and if you have multiple bitches um i'm lucky that none of mine fight everybody's good but it i i know that that the the breeding cycle and who is considered the it, the right type the not just the cycle of the dog but also the, the social dynamics of the dog oh, yeah. in terms of age and when a dog gets old enough and when a dog's younger and when you bring him into the house all of that is massively related to the to the sexual hormones and sometimes neutering one dog in a house can can completely take away any in-house aggression yeah and and, and they're like i needed the oldest dog in the house and and i don't have any problems with any of them because otherwise she was going to get i could see that there was tension building around her and the youngest female who was just getting to the age and you know so so i think that i think that neutering could, should never ever be done as a blanket approach ever i think that in terms of health benefits spaying a female dog after a second season seems it seems to most likely improve the health of the dog generally speaking although it's very breed specific and individual specific i think neutering a male dog before the age of 8 seems to make the health worse of the dog from what i can weigh up um, but in terms of behaviour, I think we need to do more studies where we've articulated the motivation of the behaviour and split the dogs up based on their motivation and then looked at the consequence of neutering rather than um, simply saying these dogs are all dog aggressive because they're dog aggressive towards this stuffy. Now we're going to neuter them. The results are mixed because you're like, yeah, that's because half of them are fearful and half of them are pushy little buggers. Right. Yeah. So that's my take on neutering. Yeah, no. It's it's quite similar. Um, like the to me, the, I mean now now we know there is quite a few uh, um, downsides of it. Of course, um, you know, I mean it's a hormonal change. It's ho hormonal change is not benign, and you no, know we have to outweigh the pros and cons. And sometimes, as you said, there is there is definitely a, it's the best case scenario, and sometimes it's not. And I think. Um, one of the things that we we always said uh, when you and I talk, we always touch on this, and I think we, we should kind of close on this and emphasize that. Like how we said, education, doc, schools for dog trainers, they need to educate, have a broader picture, not just this one side or this one side, and be be sincere about when, be, be knowledgeable, or it takes two different trainers that are knowledgeable. So, so whichever the approach, but the other one is to teach the trainers, uh, which I spend a lot of time. I don't know if you do with your classes, but uh, dog trainers take time to educate any pet on anybody that has a dog, especially a younger dog, the benefits of going out and doing some Sport. And if it's not, you, I'm not and talking going to win world championships, but do something that that dog is genetically predisposed or likes to do. And even if it's not even that, but just do yeah. something with the dog, most of I the problems go away. 
So many people who do sports have a real problem with rally. I love rally. I think it's fantastic as long as you're not, a, you know, as long as you're not saying, well, I've won rally so I'm going to compare myself to a world champion IGP player. You know, as long as you see it for what it is, which is a sport designed for pet owners. Yeah. Fantastic. We have ODM over here as well. I think you've got something similar coming out in America or already there. But we have ODM in Spain, which is basically Mondial without the bite work. But the criteria is lower. And it's fantastic for dog owners. Right. I see so many dog owners doing it. Food refusal, positions at a distance, like just real basic engagement. The the um, focused heel work is replaced with like loose leaf walking. And it's like, it's just, it's just basic stuff. And it's, it's a way of te- saying to dog owners, like, here's your goal. And, and, and you're basically saying you could be a gold standard pet dog. Like perfect, yep. absolutely perfect. But I, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think um, I think the other one that I, I just love and it's it's a shame because I know that on the tin, I used to think it was going to be boring. Um, but on the tin, people think it's boring, but nose work. I, I, I've never can. found a dog that 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 doesn't excel at nose work. Right. I've never and found it's a, a it's a easy it's a easy fairly easy thing to to have fun with a dog for sure they're teaching us we're not teaching them most of the time teaching like a really nice stable indication can help with is is a such a great foundation for so many other behaviors when there are behavior problems like it improves the bond and the relationship and it allows for a lot of play to occur it's um you know ralio and and, and scent work are my two favorites but but i couldn't agree more i mean if if, if there's any take home for for any like one of the biggest tips I'd ever give any dog owner is choose anything. Doesn't matter what it is. Just just get make a goal. I don't care. Like it could be like teach your dog a handstand for all I care. I don't care. Doesn't matter what it is. Just just make a goal and commit to teaching it. And 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 don't be put off by this idea that sessions should be 25 minutes long because the best training I do all day is the training that I do when I'm waiting for the kettle to boil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fiddling. Yeah. You fiddle. It's fiddle all day, fiddle with the behavior. Whenever you get a spare second, when you need a five minute break from, from work and your Apple watch tells you to stand up or well, just fiddle with it, just a couple of minutes every now and again, and you'll get the behavior, you'll, you'll get the bug and the dog will love it. What do you think about the electric collar bands? I don't think banning anything has ever done anyone any good. That's what I think about any bands for anything. Um, I've been to quite a lot of the European countries where they have been been banned and they're being used just as prolifically as they were before. Yeah, that was a conversation I had with Nick and and um, I was trying to, to tell him because when he goes, he goes and he talks to trainers and when they know on what side of the aisle he is, of course he's getting, when he talks to, let's say, police people, and it's like, yeah. no, no, we don't use it. When I go, of course we, we have to use it. We don't have yeah, a better exactly. option. And it goes underground. And anything anything yeah. that goes underground becomes very sketchy because the education now is restricted. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other thing that frightens the shit out of me about the electric collar bands is that sadly, and I have to admit, that I wasn't exposed to it nearly as badly until I got involved in ring sports. But sadly, I have seen people do horrible things to their dogs when they don't use a collar. Horrible things, you know, a boot and, you know, stringing dogs up and many things that I'd never repeat, but horrific things to their dogs. Now, do I think that those things are going to significantly increase 
without the ability to ca- to tackle these problems with an e-collar yet. Because the, the people who are using e-collars are gonna are not going to go, well, I'm not going to punish my dog now. They're going to find a different way. And also there's like, like I don't know if you, I don't know. There was that, that you know, the bonker, a rolled up tea towel, right? With a bit of duct tape to lob at the dog. I saw it being used horribly on a little pug that was scared shitless anyway. But, you know, what are you doing in terms of your Pavlovian conditioned response? You're making it worse. The dog's going to be more frightened of strangers, not less. And, it, you know, it wasn't being used in any way as a window. But, you know, a, 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 an object as simple and as completely, um, you know, non-threatening as a tea towel can be used if you want it to. A rolled up newspaper, anything can be yep. used like that. Yep. You know, but but by banning it, we're just we're removing the technology. We're removing any level of elegance and control. We're removing any systematic approach that's been designed for the last twenty odd years in terms of well, we've designed the systematic approach to use it on a lower level and blah blah blah, blah and all this stuff. You're removing all of that, and you're you're giving way to much much clumsier tools, much much clumsier training, and um and and a lot more people who are going to take out their emotions on the dog. That's what I think. We, so, I mean, yeah, I don't, no, I don't like I, I, I really like that. We we just need to find, like I I, I would just repeat everything you say because it's exactly how, I mean, I'm identical of how I feel. We do not have a way of how do we penalize people that are not good with their dogs or, or just not treating dogs right. And we kind of go with these blanket solutions of because it's a feel good solution on on the surface. Mm -hmm. But we do need to come up with some way. And this is a problem in in the balance training. Like, you know, you people will see and of course there is levels and I may disagree with many trainers of their approaches, but I can still see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not it, it can just cannot compare with with actual abuse that we see and yeah. Yeah. but when when we see that everybody is very hesitant to to point out and say you know what that's that's very bad approach because mm-hmm. of the idea how social media works at least it's like well if i tell you that you're a good trainer that means you have to tell me that I'm a good trainer. And if I tell you that you're bad, that puts me at risk because you will attack me. And if we resolve this to where we can all have a, some understanding where this really awful thing should, should be without question not happening and, and mm-hmm. find a way how to, I don't know if it's certain commission, if it's some anonymous, some, but somehow those trainers get exposed that this is not how it should be done because when you have somebody that has two million followers on youtube doing ridiculously horrible things to dogs Mm -hmm. and everybody knows it Mm -hmm. but nobody dares to step out and say it Uh, i i agree i agree i think there needs to also i think I think that when we were talking about the educate the regulation of dog trainers, what I would agree with would be the regulation of tools. I don't think we should ban them, but I do think they should be regulated. And I think that if there was some sort of a 
I'm going to use the word balance because I can't think of another one. But if there was some sort of a balanced education system where you were learning both different types and blah, 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 and you had to, you know, you, you learned the other style of training as well and you learned the science behind it and all that kind of stuff. And I think there should be more courses like that that actually end up being the regulation courses for the e-collar. You know, I was saying like how you, you earn to put that remote in your hand after you've done that time and all that kind of stuff. I, I think if there were more, it, it, will, it will never completely wipe out the bastards out there that just want to do horrible shit to dogs. But I think it will significantly reduce that. I also think that, um, and I know it's an unpopular opinion, but I also think that that you should, that, Dog owners should be able to hire the sophisticated e-collars of trainers. I don't think they should be able to buy them. Mm, mm, and, I think yeah. that, um, and I think that if they are able to buy a more simplistic version for, as I know that a lot of dog, dog owners believe that they're a safety belt for if their dog was to run onto a road or so on and so forth, then I think that they should, those e-collars should come with an app and instead of buying the e-collar, you pay per t- per time you use it. So if it's just being used as a safety belt and that tool has been faded and the training is good, then instead of paying, you know, £800 for the, for the e-collar, you pay £40 every time you press that button on your app. Um, and that way that they can be used genuinely as a safety belt my dog has run after a deer it doesn't normally happen i have got sufficient control of my dog but i'm not dependent on this tool that could break at any time genuinely this is an emergency boom i get charged fine i'm I'm okay with that but i don't think they should be they should be given to the public willy-nilly where they can just buy a shitty cheap e-collar that's rubbish anyway and learn off some crap on the internet about how to use it to abuse their dog so here is a playing devil's advocate on on the somebody going through educate themselves they they actually understand how to use it but just like with any other profession there is malpractice mm-hmm. and i think we have to this is this is like where i'm stuck we i think we as an industry we need to come up with a solutions with some consequences for malpractice even when you are we've you know like you can have the best doctor in the world and he can one day decide to do really dumb stupid shit to people right yeah 100% but i think we can only we can only come up with that agreement once we've start some uh, structure uh, once we've come together as an industry and and once certainly the education providers of the industry can come together and and the the problem is is that a lot of the education providers that i talk to don't know shit but they don't know shit they don't they don't understand how to use it or what it is or or how it works so how how you know how can they possibly have a decent opinion on it and then if you don't have those education providers on board with the decision, then it's never going to go through the industry because there is a bias towards what those education providers think. So, so for me, you know, there needs to be some sort of a dog training council that is that is the top mm. guys from all across mm. the boards that come together and first off educate each other on these things. Right. Then we educate everybody else. You know, there needs to be education for the educators that is balanced, as in the positive stuff as well as the negative stuff the skills from this side and the skills from this side and so on and so forth 
then that trickles down into to educating the others. But also that council then is, is of an educated mindset to make decisions about what does warrant abuse. Because at the moment, if you ask the vast majority of people from my land in the sand backwards, they would say all of it. It's like if, so even, I mean, even the people that would be like, I can see how it can work somewhere, but I would rather get it banned because it, it, it creates this safety overall. And but yeah, I don't know. I think we have a, I think we brought up some really, really, really good key points of, of all of us in the dog training world to focus on and, and brainstorm and, and, mm-hmm. and, and move into a, a much healthier direction. It's, it's totally possible. I think so. I do feel, you know, I have days where I feel less positive about it, but I do feel optimistic that the more conversations that like this that can happen between you know two trainers from from the other sides if you like and the more we can talk like like have an open conversation where you ask me well what would you do in this situation yeah. and i ask you well, what you know why would you use that 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 punishment event and like we can have these open conversations and we can have and we, and still draw on the similarities between us rather than the differences Now, I think the more conversations like that that can happen, like my hat comes off for you talking to, you know, Michael and, and, and Susan and, and all of that, because I think... I think I've learned that, so much that, from those conversations. You have no yeah. idea. But also it's a massive way forward. And, and I'm sure they learn stuff. I'm sure, I've, you know, I've definitely learned stuff talking to you and watching your videos and stuff. And I think that the more that we can talk to each other about it, the more that we can find common ground. I, I, I wish all of us would train together more. Um, you know, this is my next step and I, I guess I'm going to give it away, but this is definitely my next step of my big projects that I have in mind. And mm. so um, it was partially the reason I, I was talking to Michael Ellison yesterday or whatever. I, I just had to call him. I'm like, we need to do this. You need to come here and we need to think which trainers we need to invite and we need to just train for four days together and have some wine and talk dogs and and like if we don't train together we there is no like the the conversations that we are having is they're super cool but they yeah. will wear out unless we take it to the next level and the next level really is me saying Jorossi, Nick Benger, Michael, Shikashio, do you wanna what is your time frame? Where can you come to Florida and you three and me and Michael, we train dogs for four days. For sure. A hundred percent. 100%. Because also the your money is where your mouth is like that. Like I've got um my like hashtag that I use on Instagram is shut up and train. Because it's all well and good us all having these conversations, but they're a waste of time. Like really, unless you can prove it. You know, the amount of trainers that you that you look that you look at and and you know, I've no names but even trainers that come on podcasts especially positive trainers and talk about positive training and you go through all their social media looking for training videos and go right. well, where's your actual f- oh there is none there's none I've, i can see no training i've got no idea whether or not you're any good at actually training anything and and i just think that if you're going to talk about it at such a high level you have to have the training ability like the academic knowledge isn't enough unless you're only coming on a podcast as a scientist um and and i think that Because I think I, I hear a lot of people as well talking about the the theory behind their training, both from both sides. And I think, what's she train? You don't train like that. You know, like like and I hate and I'm not bad mouthing anybody, but I've I've 
I've definitely seen, I've definitely spoken to NAPO Po trainers um, that that use the collar as a correction a lot more than anything else. And I think, well, or that the dog just doesn't have any heart and soul. And I look at it and I think, right, right, it's flat as a pancake. You're yeah. a gold instructor, and you're. I've only seen you use the collar to correct the dog. Yeah. Like you can talk a good game when I've spoken to you about it, and I agree with what you've said, the, the, the theory of what you've said, but I can't see the practical of that. And, and likewise, some of the most forceful trainers on in the world, one particular YouTube trainer who's incredibly popular um, as a very, very force-free person. Um, and I met her on the beach with her dog on a lead with a, um, and the dog was going after seagulls, seagulls and she was correcting it every 10 seconds very badly. And I was thinking to myself, like, it's bullshit. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's just not true. Like, what, you, what you're giving out isn't true. So... So I hundred percent, hundred percent agree that you like you've got to have the beans to to, to actually train it, um, because also there's the whole you know, Terry Ryan who used to train with Bob Bailey, um, she came and did a chicken camp, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. at my old venue in England, and um, and I remember her, my favourite phrase that she ever said was, oh well, we used to always say put your chicken on your table, like put the chicken on the table. If you've got an idea about training, put the chicken on the table, like. As trainers, we've got to do it. We've got to put the chicken on the table because we'll find out, actually, you know. Oof, what a conversation. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, we can talk forever, but I don't think people, I don't know, we've been talking for what What it's been? Too, too long, probably. Or Three and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> used up all your memory cards. So, Sorry. No, no, we're good. Eric is now prepared for long ones. He, he kind of got used to that we talk forever, so he's not even stopping me. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing, but, but we're good. Unfortunately, I'm not going to see you in Romania. I told you my, like, we were doing so good, so, so good. Like, training was going so well. I had all my really good friends here helping me because, you know, training to, to be the, in the top, 10 or top five it's it's you don't train by your you need you need everybody it takes a village it takes Absolutely. a village so we got into Oof. this like perfect rhythm and and like really i was just such a such a good place in my mind where we are going with the dog and he tore an acl and he had to have the surgery and now he's seven he's gonna be eight in august so Chances are I really need to, out of this huge dream, the expectation mm. just went down. And my poor dog, he was in a super condition. He, I mean, we are training, yeah. you know, like he's like ready. He, and yeah. now I have to walk him on my property on a flexi lead because he gotta stay quiet. And luckily, I try to look at it in a good side. I have my young dog, so I kind of focus now on them. I hope of, you know, but I don't scratch it out. The, the bad thing with ACL is one goes down, then you start training and chances are super high that the other leg gives it too. And so who knows, but I, I you, you, it's, it's the love of the dog, isn't it? I've got a, a, a much, much, much more minor version of that at the moment with with my so my oldest dog is eight. I don't know where he is, but he's he's eight. Um, and at my last trial, the decoy made an error with the gunshot, um, and for the first time ever in eight years, he came off the bite on the gun. And I know the painful journey of changing recovering, changing yeah, yeah, enough, changing it enough because there's always going to be that conflict. And he's eight, yeah. And I'm like, 
do, like do I bother like part of me thinks I've got my young dog who's who's a year now and she's coming on really nicely she's kind of ready and I just think you know you've got to put the dog first haven't you and you've got to go no I'm, I'm in it for the dog I'm not in it for anything else right. and it's not it's 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 shit. I mean, it's that's nothing compared to what you've just gone through. Nothing. This is but one of other thing people really like. Like people that don't that look down on trainers that do dog sports. They 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 think that we just kind of use them for our own benefit. That's really what they think. Like the the, the amount of work and the amount of bond that goes into. Um, that goes into having like one of the reasons that I became so addicted to dog sports when I first started doing athletics with my um, with my pit bull was the fact that I didn't I didn't think our relationship could get better. Right. Like, I thought that I had everything with him. Like I got him. He, like I say, he was a game bred pit bull from London. Someone had chopped his ears off with a pair of scissors. He was a nightmare dog. I got him. I basically had to rip up the encyclopedia. Sorry, Steve, um, <laughs> of dog behaviour because he went against every rule in every book. And we got through hundreds of different, every time I managed to get one behavior sorted, he would resource guard or decide he hated children or whatever. And um, I thought I could never be more bonded to a dog than this pit bull. Like he's he's my my life. I love him. And then we started doing athletics and I was like, wow. Yeah. Like the working partnership you get is, is, is undeniable. And it was after that that I was addicted. I thought I'm never going to have another dog and not do a form of, like of competitive high level sport with it again, because what it does for your relationship is is incomparable to what you think you've got. Yeah, I think the the biggest takeaway for anybody that listens to us talking for so long is <laughs> if you're not doing something with your dogs, you, you're missing out. Like yeah. you, you're really missing out on, of what this relationship between dog and person can be. Let's wrap it up. Thank you, Jorosi. I think, um, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we're going to be and I'm there. I'm no, no, there this is I'm... absolutely this is like uh, uh, Michael already agreed. I, I haven't talked to the other people, um, but I, I know this is happening. We were making this happen and it's going to. And, and again, what I'm saying, what I'm my grand plan is that we we actually do this in different hotspots in the world. Sure. Because well, we all need to get together. Oh, it will. It will definitely happen. It has to I happen. Ton, I have tons of dogs we can use. Yeah, it has to happen. So, again, thank you. Uh, super conversations as always. And uh, have fun in, in, your, in Romania. It's going to be, I, I'm sure it's going to be a big one. I'm not going. <laughs> but we will be, we'll be talking off, offline as well. Take sure. care. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you.